0: Podcast world, what's up? Chad Belding back at you with another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody, and today we are going to have kind of a stud in the studio. He's a a veteran, if you will, of the outdoor television game. His story's pretty cool. If you haven't researched it, do yourself a favor and read up on what these guys do. When I say these guys, I'm talking about... Tim Burnett, he has a partner. I think you call him a partner. I don't know exactly how Remy Warren plays into the solo hunter scheme of things, but Tim Burnett, who was born and raised in the state of Idaho, which is close to where we're at right now, depending whether you fly or drive, you're six hours or one hour. And he grew up in the mountains, and he got into the TV game with an idea that you don't see a lot of. It's very original. It's very clever. It's very outside the box. And what I mean by that is that he literally – is the only one on the show doing everything for that episode, whether it's the field production, hitting record on the camera, setting the camera angles up, stalking the animal, pulling the bow back, drawing the bow back, letting the arrow fly, harvesting that animal, processing and butchering that animal while the camera's running, packing that animal out, getting it in the truck and driving out of the mountains wherever he might be. So I want to get into it because I'm intrigued because when we go out in the field, we have three cameramen with us, one being a photographer, two being behind you know motion cameras, and we have probably four five, six, seven guys in the duck blind or goose field with us. And it's a lot different, but it's so intriguing and it's captivating because it is So freaking difficult if you've ever put yourself in that position. And I know that I've seen people climb up into a tree stand and mount a camera on a little camera arm or something and and, and pray that they get the deer on there as he walks under. But these guys are stalking elk and antelope and mule deer and goats and sheep and you name it Western Big Game, they're after it. So Tim Burnett, welcome, my man. Thanks, Chad.
1: I appreciate it. It's a hell of an introduction there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, man. I'm I'm really I'm blown away that that you guys won could even get one hunt on camera the patience and the the just the overall psyche that you have to have because i know how frustrating it can be when something like mother nature doesn't cooperate the wind direction's not right the sun's not right you got too low of a ceiling it's too overcast when you're out duck hunting and goose hunting there's a lot of things that parlay into a successful hunt on camera we want to keep it as realistic as possible but i've gotten to the point now to where If it's not, it doesn't have to be dead on perfect, but if I don't have the right wind or I have no wind at all, it's almost I'd rather go and and, and get some environmentals or a sunrise or some, you know, some of the surrounding areas or fly the drone over the town or the camp or whatever. But you guys, what's so intriguing about it is that failure has got to be the norm In this game. And I'm just assuming this because you guys are, you you can't relive a hunt. So I I think the biggest, the biggest question I'm going to have today, and I I, want to get into a lot more than just what you do or how you do it. And I don't want you to feel like you have to give any secrets away, but it just seems like you can't just say hey here's the camera angle watch me stalk this deer and because you're in and out of trees you're on your knees you're standing up you're breathing heavy you, i just envision a lot of repositioning of these cameras and going back and forth and remy explained it a little bit when he was in studio but what, the 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 roots say you know if you look into what you did as a kid you were intrigued with the mountains mm-hmm. is that fair to say yeah you wanted sure. to be in the mountains I, we lived in the mountains you know i mean that was my backyard there literally was no there was
1: no separation between off the back deck the farm and then the wild you know there was just no separation and so we were out there all the time what what part of idaho was this <clears> in it in central idaho the big lost river valley more Idaho is where I grew up. Is your family still there? Yep, my folks are still there, and um, you know, still have the little farm. And but it was it was natural, you know, to, to when you say obsessed with the mountains. Of course, I mean that was that was what your playground was. There was no there was no going to the park and, and playing and pickup games of basketball. It was hey uh, chores are done. Let's go see if we can find some deer or something. It yeah, but that doesn't that
0: doesn't mean that you get to go into the like. I, getting the permission as a kid to go and spend the night over your friend's house meant a couple mm-hmm. things. Who's gonna be there? Have I met his parents before? Should I go sit down? And this is my mom and dad talking. I need to meet his parents. Do they smoke in the house? They had all these questions, right? right? right. Well, now you're sitting here telling your mom and dad, hey, I'm gonna go on a mile hike and I'm just gonna camp out under the stars. And your mom and dad aren't like, no, you're not. There's bears and there's wolves and there's, uh, but when I read up on you, you spent many a nights alone as a kid, a young kid in the mountains. Well, I think my parents
1: mastered the art of feral parenting. So it was like, and I don't know, I don't want it to be sound like they weren't weren't involved or weren't watching over us. And I, cause I'm sure that they were, but my brothers and I, I think ha, we all have strong personalities and very independent personalities. So when I would ask mom, Hey, can I go up and sleep up on the mountain? She didn't care. You know, she, I think they had learned to trust us from a young age and that was just all part of it because my brothers were doing it. And it was just something that she knew that I was, was, uh, you know, obsessed with. And that she trusted
0: that I would come back in time to do chores the next morning so you're actually going out though and w- in the midst of all the wildlife or what could happen in the mountains mm-hmm. you're saying that your mom and dad are they're not making sure that you're back before the sun goes down it i mean it's dark and you're actually sleeping out there is how old are we talking right you now? you
1: got to remember i mean the farm culture growing up on a farm was different 30 years ago e- even probably different than growing up on a farm would be now you know if, if someone grew grew up in the city um, they're not going to really comprehend what it's like to grow up in a, in a, in an environment and in a living situation where chores had to be done. There was, there was a lot of responsibility put on your shoulders that couldn't be overseen or shouldn't be overseen all the time. And so there was a lot of trust built, I think, between the kids and the parents, you know, if the kids were doing good things, you know, and not out partying and farting around. So I think from my parents standpoint was, um, you know, the, the elements are harsh, the winters are are long and hard. It's just it's just a tough, tough environment. And so when your parents I think my parents looked at it and said, you know, these kids are capable. They're they're not irresponsible. They're not going to go out and get themselves killed. And it was just a buildup of time that they that they probably just learned to trust that we were gonna we were going to come back, you know? And and two, it wasn't like I just decided one day, oh, I'm going to go up and sleep on the mountain. You know, it was probably accumulation of years of me and my brothers spending time on the mountain till dark and then being back home and and doing that over and over and over until you gain that comfort level with with that spot in that area. You know, I can go back to that spot right now and show you exactly where I used to sleep next to these rocks or in this specific cave, you know. But we just became so comfortable with our yard, our backyard, that it it was just like sleeping on the trampoline to us, you know.
0: So what? What? at what age were you when you first, sh- let's say, shot a gun? Was the gun before the bow as a kid? Yeah. It, well,
1: yeah. I mean, we were shooting guns, gosh, I don't know. Four um, or five years old? Probably. My dad's not a big, he's not a hunter, he's not a big gun guy, but there was always rifles, you know, and, and guns on the farm because sometimes they needed to be used, right? Um, and, you know, my first vivid memories of, of shooting a gun were as hunting as it was coming, you know, probably 10, 11 years old that I can remember because the talk, the chatter started to be, hey, my older brother's taking hunter safety. You're going to be taking hunter safety soon. So it was like, let's go shoot. Um, and I, so I, I don't know exactly how early on, but it was always a part of it.
0: So when you were sleeping up on the mountain, were you packing? No, really?
1: No. No. I mean, we, I, I don't, think, I don't think to this day my dad has a handgun. You know, I don't remember having handguns. We had lever action 30-30 and a 223. So did you bring a rifle 23? No, as a kid? No. You didn't need one? I didn't know there was mountain lions back there. <laughs> you didn't know there was? Well, I mean, you, you don't think about it. When you grow up in that environment, you don't think about those things. Just like my buddies up in Alaska, you know, I'm paranoid. I don't like grizzly bears. I don't like brown bears. I don't like the thought of that. And they're like... Yeah, it's pretty much nothing. You know, it's pretty much just just the way that it is. So, I don't think I was probably too dumb to realize the dangers that might have been there, but it really just didn't cross my mind.
0: You know? So, you're growing up on a farm, but you're, you said your dad didn't hunt much. Was there somebody else in your life? Was it an older brother, an uncle, or something mm-hmm. that actually got you or showed you their passion for the actual hunt and the actual harvest? Yeah. So there was always, you know, my older brothers that were
1: kind of into hunting a little bit. Um, you know, and the friends around me that I went to school with and and spent a lot of time with my uncle was was a, an avid hunter uh, what actually got my brothers and I into hunting like where it was here this is how you do it I'm gonna help you was a, a retired military guy that moved into the valley my dad was installing carpet in his house um, and I remember my I can remember the day my younger brother came home with his his eye he already had big eyes we call him, his name's Jeremiah so we already called him Jeremiah the bullfrog but like he came home and he was just it's like, you guys got to come over and check out this guy's basement. This is freaking amazing, you know? And he had this whole VHS library of hunting videos. He was a passionate traditional archer, so he had all the equipment to build arrows and fletch, you know, create his own fletchings. He had jigs to make his own arrows. I mean, this guy was dialed when it comes to traditional archery. And when we went over there, that, that right there is what really spawned the hunting bug for us was just seeing it and being involved in it. And having him open up his home in his arms and saying, hey, these boys, are, these boys are enthralled by what I'm doing. I'm going to take them under my wing and kind of show them. And he took us on our first hunts and, and got us set up to where we could order our first bows out of a catalog. You know, we all ordered these PSE $100
0: bows, and uh, that's what really got us started into it. And, and how old do you, you remember how old you were when, that, when you went to that basement? I was 13. So thirteen years old, you yeah, get bit system. by the archery bug that no, night. No, I
1: was probably twelve because my first hunting season was when I was thirteen with a
0: bow. So, so you were twelve, you know, and so you're you're talking like probably Fred Bear videos and 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 stuff that you would you would find at the old sporting goods store on the VHS yeah. rack,
1: old school stuff. My favorites was was Dwight Shoe, Larry D. Jones. There was some Ben Pearson stuff in there, some Fred Bear stuff, but um, by far the ones that stood out the most was was Wayne Carlton and Larry D. Jones. You know, hunting those. Larry hunting those high country mule deer with his long bow. And just, I mean, that was just, that was all I wanted to do. And I remember telling my brothers, when I grow up, I want to make hunting videos. And we have, in fact, I actually posted a a post the other day of a a survey that I took in high school. Like I have in my journal writings that I want to make hunting videos, you know, when I grow up. And I have, I just actually came across a story the other day because I've been kind of combing through some of my, old journals and old stuff from when I was a kid. And I came across a story that I wrote, I think probably my sophomore year of high school because it was within a bunch of that stuff. And it was a hunting story that I wrote about me and my imaginary friend Ted, you know? So like we were that into it and it was just, something that I knew that I wanted to do from a really early age.
0: So, you know, you hear these stories, like a kid picks up a, a, a guitar or a set of drumsticks and just wears oh, yeah. his mom and dad out. Did it wear your mom and dad out to where they're like, Hey, chill out on the archery and get your grades up or get out on the farm and do some work. Don't worry about it. Or were they, were they supportive from the get go?
1: They were very supportive. Um, but they were—they probably tolerated a lot because we were—we were taking all of the old carpet from that dad would bring home and we're cutting it into these animal silhouettes and we had animal silhouettes hanging all over the farm, you know, every everywhere where there was a haystack or a manure pile or something, it had a, a deer or an elk or a bighorn sheep silhouette, carpet silhouette on it. And I remember we'd go out to do chores. My brothers and I would grab our bows. We'd step out the door and fling at one target, you know, then we'd go and pull the arrow, do some chores. We'd fling at the others. And by the time the chores were done, we'd flung, you know,
0: 20, 30 arrows before you go back in the house and get ready for school. Did you ever get into the competition part of archery, no, shooting or nothing? No. But are you qualified as, as far as, did that? those days doing that kind of stuff get you to the level to where... You feel very confident with a bow?
1: I don't want make, I don't know what makes you qualified. You know, I mean, at that time, we, weren't, we didn't have sights or anything on the bows. It was all open sight. So we, we had this one target. I remember it was my favorite target because I'd walk out and it was a quartering away silhouette of a mule deer that was on the manure pile. And I would like to shoot that thing from 60, 65 yards just because at that, I mean, nobody shoots at 60 yards when you're a kid, but it felt so good to be able to drill it into that target. And I wish at the time that we had had cameras because you could just see the carpet just shredded in the vital areas because that was my favorite target and I would love to just quarter that into there. Really. And as a kid, I was a probably a far better shot than I than I am now, you know, just because it's all instinctive. It's yeah. it's all you're not worried about form because nobody's teaching you form, you're just drawing the bow back, anchoring and shooting and you're just learning, you know, a lot like kids learn golf or anything else, you watch somebody that really knows what they're doing. So I would watch Larry D Jones, and I would watch all these guys shoot, and that's how we kind of taught ourselves how to shoot.
0: So in a nutshell, just in layman's terms, to somebody that doesn't understand what you mean by taught us how to shoot, how do you shoot a bow? What, is the, what are the important aspects of it? Is it breathing? Is it clear in your mind? Is it instinctual Do where you just grab it and pull and go? Are both eyes open? Like, give me, the, give me just the, the short version. I think it depends on how
1: you're taught. For, for me and my brother, my, my brother Boyd is, is probably who I would refer to the most. When we talk conversation about shooting, everything is wrapped around instinct. And around instinctive, because that's that to me is what makes a pure shooter. And I'm not a tournament shooter, I'm not a target archer. You know, I know that there's a lot that goes into form and technique and and everything else. But in my mind, if you can repeat the same motion over and over and over and over again, and that motion is correct and it becomes instinct, you're that's the best form of shooting that there is. What I mean by instinct is is not aiming. You're just looking at what you want to shoot. You draw back and you let the arrow fly. You're, you're, you're taking no time to aim. It's just 100% instinctive. And that's where sights and everything on, these, on our new bows kind of takes that, that level of instinct away. So. But I think that's, that makes a person a better shooter.
0: So you're talking about technology as it evolves. You've evolved with it, or were you ignorant to yeah. it at first, or did you were there you kind of no. standoffish and said there was
1: no technology at first? But it I was. mean,
0: no. But I mean, when the technology came, were you like, no, I'm not moving, I'm not moving on, I'm staying yep. old school. I didn't, it?
1: I didn't put sights on my bow until I actually started into the TV stuff in 2004. That was the first time I had ever put sights on my bow.
0: Really? Yeah. So you're you're 12 years old, you're in this guy's basement, you get the bug, Jeremiah the Bullfrog's eyes are huge, Mm -hmm. you guys are watching VHS tapes, probably wearing them out like I did with Duckman and Warren Coco and Phil Mm -hmm. Robertson back in the day. And now, a year later, you're 13 with a bow. Had you had hunted with a gun at this point at all? You, there, this was your first hunt ever was well, with a bow? When I was 13, that was the first year that I hunted with a rifle as well. As a rifle as yep. well. So you yep. did you did rifle and archery in the same season. Correct, yeah. Were you successful?
1: Um, I stuck a bull elk when I was 13 with my bow. I, I can remember sneaking through the trees. My younger brother, Boyd, who was too young to hunt, was was up on the top of the mountain waiting for us. What we did is we left the house we walked up to the top of the mountain and my jeremiah saw some elk in a clearing he saw four elk and so we were like sweet there's elk over there so we rimmed around the top and we're talking miles you know around the top of there and boyd was so if i was 13 boyd would have been like nine you know eight or nine years old so we left him on this tree because he was tired jeremiah and i went into the trees and as we started pushing through the trees, Jeremiah went high, and I went around and went into the back of him and just tailed this, this herd of elk and um, <clears throat> was able to get in close and get a shot, and st- I stuck a bull right in the shoulder. And, you know, I thought, sweet, I can see the arrow sticking out. I can see him bleeding. This is, this is awesome. And just kept pushing him, you know, until he disappeared, and I never did find him. And as that elk herd left, there was 80-something head of elk that went past my brother Boyd as they went out. We never did find that elk until we did find the deadhead a couple of years later.
0: So, do you, is that attributed to just getting the adrenaline going, and he ran off, and, and or you didn't let him bleed out long enough?
1: That was a case of you know you're 13 years old. Jeremiah is 12.
0: Yeah, and, you're, and, you're just too far. And that enough. was a case.
1: You know, I knew that I hit the elk. I, I'm you know, he's dead to me because he's bleeding and it's the arrows where it's supposed to be or close to where it's supposed to be. So you just push him, it gets into thick timber and, you, and it, then it's just a lack of knowledge. You just don't know what you're doing at that point. You know, you don't know really what you're tracking other than blood. Um, and it was to the point where if there wasn't, there just wasn't enough blood for us to track it out and knowing now it's like, of course you just back out and wait a couple, wait an hour go in and the elk's laying dead there. You know? right. But as a kid, you push him a deeper, deeper, deeper. And that was, that's what happened is we found him in a real deep, you know, dark cut where he had just got into. Were and you looking
0: for him when you found him? No,
1: no, just we not. were still hunting, just hunting. And was, I, you know, a few years later.
0: So found him. Yeah. Ballistically speaking with, with archery, is a 13 year old kid and you're drawing that bow back I think of today's technology at right. 400 feet a second and, mm-hmm. and drawn back at 60 to 75 pounds, whatever you choose to do. What, how fast does an arrow need to be going to successfully kill an elk, which you did? But the, it, is, is there a certain amount of speed that you need? Because I, I assume a 13 year old kid can't pull back that heavy a bow no, or it, shoot that fast of an arrow. Okay. Took 40 pounds, 45 pounds. I was a small
1: kid. You know? you're, so you're talking 40, 45 pounds and an aluminum 2213 arrow, you're talking a 300 grain arrow, maybe, you know, so that was the, that was the issue. You, you punch that elk where I hit it today and it blows right through him. It blows through both shoulders. There's not an issue. Uh, that, that probably was the problem. And, and you're also talking about a, you know, a hand sharpened bare razor head broadhead that a kid, 13 year old kid sharpened. So you know, there's a few issues into it, but that's part of the learning. You know, that's that's what that's what helps you to figure it out. And then I didn't kill an an elk from then with my bow until my early twenties. You know, I had killed a couple with a rifle after that,
0: but why,
1: why hadn't I killed with a bow?
0: Yeah, why didn't you? I didn't get close enough. I wasn't good enough. So you were hunting. Yeah. Was it over the counter in Idaho for yeah, an elk it still is. Still I, had is. That, I had that in my notes to talk to you about. Is does, Why did you move to Nevada from Idaho? My wife's from here. So she was going to college up at Idaho State
1: where I was living. I wasn't going to college at the time, but um, we had met at, in Idaho State. And then after, shortly after we got married, we moved back down here. And then that, that's kind of what pulled me here. It's it her kind of similar
0: to the Idaho area. I mean, it's a lot of similarities as far yeah. as the aesthetics go. Yeah. I mean, Reno and Boise have a lot of similarities as far as the valley, the mountains surrounding it. I know you didn't live in Boise, but, um, we did, we actually lived in Meridian
1: for, Oh, you lived in so, Meridian. so we moved here and then we, we lived here for a few years. And then when I got into the TV stuff, we moved away to Oklahoma for a year and then moved back to Idaho for a couple of years and then back down here, you know, ultimately, but you can't, you can't beat the Reno climate. Like it's. If you like the mountains and you still like having your seasons, Reno is phenomenal weather. I'd, I'd take it, it's climate over where I grew up, you know, any day. I mean, freezing your balls off every day up there in Idaho, even June or July. You know? Really? It'd be that cold in the mountains? You're, you know, you're near close to 6,000 feet. You're right in the mountains. There's not a, not, not untypical that it couldn't snow in June or July. It was awesome. I'd love to live there now, but you know, the older I get, I, I grow kind of accustomed to these mild winters.
0: what are your sweet. what are your your thoughts real quick on the the application process of a state like Nevada, the draw system? how mm-hmm. difficult it can be for a resident or a non-resident to draw a you know, a tag you might get one once every five years there's stipulations if you draw mm-hmm. an antelope tag and you're successful five years to put in mm-hmm. i believe elk is still 10 if you're successful on an elk hunt it might have got dropped down to five did they, also
1: did they do that to seven or something might i don't have. know I, i'm the worst
0: i know the, when i killed I mean, my elk it was 10 years you had to wait to yeah. apply again yeah so i i feel like our populations are healthy when it comes to elk i know that we've had problems with whether it was drought whether it was food whether it was too many mountain lions or coyotes or predator whatever it just seems to me like um it's it's one of the more difficult states to be successful in of even getting to hunt even though our we have some unbelievable trophy hunting here would you agree with that oh totally yeah nevada's
1: nevada's phenomenal i mean that's that is probably the number one thing that keeps me from moving away from nevada is the fact that i've got better chance of drawing a sheet tag living here than anywhere else I love hunting mule deer in Nevada. You know, I, I, when I think of Nevada, it's an it's a bow hunter state because if you're if you're a bow hunter, you can get a deer tag every year. I mean, there's units that you can draw every year, and there's nothing better than hunting deer in August. You know, it's it's phenomenal. Um, it's it's not a state even if you look at the hunts. There's very very few hunts that you can get that are during the rut, like you can do up in Idaho or in Montana or some of the other states. So, I. I I'm kind of hit or miss. I like the fact that everything is a, is a draw from one standpoint because it kind of raises the trophy potential of the, of the animals. It also, it also, you know that you're only competing with a certain number of hunters in that unit. Whereas I go to Idaho and they may have a limited number of deer tags that they sell, but all 15,000 people are in my unit, you know, yeah. or they're all in one place or there's, there's just a lot more hunting pressure in areas like that that are over the counter. You know, I think it, it'd kind of ruin the deer hunting here if it went over the counter. For for sure,
0: but do you think when it comes to mule deer, I've heard it thrown around like it's the most sought after North American big game animal there is, even though there's Rocky mm-hmm. Mountain sheep and deserts and Californias and mountain goats at 11,000 feet and 400 inch bull elk. Is it because they're like a ghost? Is it because they're so hard to get on? Is, are they hard to field judge? Or what makes them... Is that true? Is that, is that a true statement? Or is is it is it just something I'm, I'm falsifying is. in my own thoughts? It's
1: true for me. I mean, a big... When you're talking a
0: big... Like mule, what's been, big, 180 mule. bigger? No,
1: I mean, 190
0: or bigger is a big mule deer.
1: 190 or bigger. You know, I mean, my biggest deer that I've ever killed was within 20 miles of your house, you know? I mean, that's that's what's awesome about Nevada. No, I think... When you're, when you say it's the the most sought after, I think a big, a Boone and Crockett mule deer is probably the most sought after because statistically speaking, it's probably the most difficult to get um, of any of the the species that are out there, right? I mean, what's Boone and Crockett for elk? I don't know, 340, 325? Boone and Crockett's higher than that, Probably it's probably 3, I don't know, three I'm the worst at this crap because I don't care. Yeah, I don't care care. either. I don't know. For me, it's like uh, to kill a big big mule deer you know which is a big four point big deer is a lot harder than it is to go and kill a big six point bull out to for me
0: really um are they harder to stalk are they harder to find is it a lot i know it's a lot of ridge time a lot of glass time but mm-hmm. are why are they just are they just not there are there not as many no, big mule deer i think i think what it comes down to is the easiest and again this is
1: just this is just me and my experience speaking here is and it, there's there's certainly guys out there that are that i look up to that are um mule deer geniuses that that I would get would lean to for information on 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 mule deer or or elk or anything else. For me, it's there's very few hunting opportunities to kill a mule deer when he's the most killable. A big mule deer when he's the most killable, which I think are August and November or December. You know, very few states offer those opportunities to hunt a deer during those times. So if you can draw a good tag in Nevada or somewhere or Utah or some of these other states that offer an August hunt, man, you can go in and kill a whopper. My biggest deer, the biggest mule deer that I've killed have either come in August or December. Um, because I think they're just the most vulnerable when you move into October, just because you got a rifle tag doesn't mean you're going to find a big buck cause they're harder than hell to find in October, you know, cause they're just, They just go into the deep country and, and they're, they're hard to find. So when, when people say, oh, rifle hunting's cheating and this and that, well, yeah, rifle hunting would be cheating if it were in August or December, you know, then it's pretty damn easy, but you take rifle hunting in October, it's hard. It's really hard. And that's just because you're hunting a different animal. You know, if if I could, if there was a buck that I found in July and I could hunt him in August and I couldn't get him killed, I probably wouldn't see him in October. And then November might roll around, and I might see him again. He might pop his head back out and start ch- pushing some does.
0: Why? Why do they go into that deep cover in October? Because that's when everybody's out chasing them with rifles,
1: you so know, they're just hiding. I, just, I you know, I, I they're well, they're obviously they're changing. Their testosterone levels are changing. That's part of how they, they you know, they're shedding their velvet and they're they're just preparing themselves for the rut. October is just a different time for every every animal. They're all they're all kind of changing. Specifically with mule deer, you know, in August they're. They're kind of laid back. They're a little bit lazy. They're, they're thinking about sleeping all day pretty much and then get into a nice little spot, but they're very visible in the mornings and in the evenings. So if you can pattern, if you can find a big buck and you're patient enough and you can pattern him and not bump him, then I think you've got a really good chance of getting him killed. Um, Once October rolls around, those big bucks have been pushed around a little bit. They've been, you know, toyed with. They're starting to not like their buddies. They're getting a little agitated, and they're starting to push each other around, shedding their velvet. And they know what's coming in November. They know it's going to be a a race, you know, and they just change a little bit in October. I think it's just their nature. Whitetail are the same way. They just kind of change in October, and
0: I don't think they do a whole hell of a lot. But as far as the August time frame goes, and you have a bow. Mm Mm-hmm. There's still a huge, a very high level of difficulty in this, right? And where I'm going with this is like you see somebody like Randy Ulmer who comes to Nevada and he's successful quite a bit with huge mule deer and it's always in August and it's always in velvet and Mm -hmm. it's always 200 and something inches and there's Mm -hmm. some non-typicals, there's some nice typicals is there difficulty in it? Or is it all about that patterning? Is it all about the piece of property that you're on? Is it about going to finding that deer and sleeping with it on the mountain and knowing it's escape routes and knowing every single thing that that deer is going to do during the day, depending on the weather?
1: Yeah. I think the hardest part is finding the deer. Do you know how many hours and days the guy like Greg Krogh, you know, or Sean Shea here in town would put into finding a big buck? I mean, just days and weeks and hours. And once you find it, you know, there's no guarantee that he's going to be there when hunting season rolls around. There's no guarantee that Remy doesn't have his eyes on it, too. Or Chad, you know, somebody else has got their eyes on this buck and just hasn't said a word because he's a beast. Um, You know, uh, it's just I think they're easier to find in July and August. They're more visible. They're they're not in the thick cover as much. The hardest part is, is once you find them and then getting lucky for that buck to put himself in a position where you can kill him because not, not. There's not every day that you can go on a stock and say I'm gonna oh there's that buck I'm gonna go kill it. It's like, no, he's there for a reason. The wind's blowing the right way. He can see everything here. He knows his buddies up on the ridge over there. There's a lot of luck that plays into it, and that's why you see guys like Randy. You know, it, it doesn't take them one or two days to go in and kill this buck. There's a accumulation of days between him and Greg and all the guys you know that have their eyes on this deer to to get it in the right position at the right time for him to sneak in and smack it.
0: I'm trying to figure out, like, when you start talking about deep cover, the first thing that I think of in an archery type scenario, and I'm, I'm I remember the Eastman videos back in the day, or even the last couple of years, where the Eastman family would put out these high country mule deer videos. Mm-hmm. And I don't want you to give away any of the solo hunter Tim Burnett secrets or any secrets that a mule deer fanatic would have. I I absolutely love mule deer. I love I love everything about the mule deer hunt. Do you go high in August or is that the, was that the first wrong move that a deer hunter can make is to go high?
1: No, I think it depends on, you got to know your area first. um, Around here, you got to go, I mean, are these mountains around here aren't very high, right? But there's freaking big deer close to your house here. You just got to get to where they're at. And obviously in Nevada, it's water. They got to be close to water. Some areas have more water than others. But some of the biggest bucks that you'll see within a hundred mile radius of here are on private property down down low at four thousand feet elevation, you know. So it just depends on your area. You have to know your area. If you drew the tag for the garbage, the big bucks are gonna be, you know, in garbage where and, and that's high country. So high they're country. gonna be eight to ten thousand feet. Does there have higher. to be
0: does there have to be buck brush around? And for people that don't know what buck brush is, there is a such thing, and I don't know if that's the scientific term for that bush or that brush, but you see mule deer eating it a lot. Do you is that one thing that you look for when you're in your scouting missions? You know, they, I mean, their browsers
1: are going to eat a lot of things. Um, I don't pay a lot of atten- attention to vegetation. I when I'm hunting for a mule deer in August, I'm using my eyeballs because I mean, they're visible. So I'm spending a lot of time as this, as it's getting light in the mornings, and I'm glassing the snot out of everything that I can. Midday, I'm probably not going to, not going to penetrate that mountain too much unless I, you know, if it's during season, then I, I will, I'll get to certain points, but then in the evening time, you're positioning to a different part of the mountain. So you can see a different part of the mountain. Um, It's, it's just a lot of spending a lot of time. The way I do it um, is just spending a lot of time with your glass and just picking the mountain apart until you've either decided that there's a, a buck that you want to go after, or you've kind of eliminated the, the chance that there's a buck in there and you move to the next range.
0: So you pick a vantage point and you have your binoculars with you. And then I assume mm-hmm. you have a tripod with a spotting scope on it to get a better look at a deer that you think might have potential. Mm-hmm. When you're in your binoculars, are they on sticks or is it something to where you want to be as steady as possible because a guy like you and I would assume like my brothers do they they're not like me I have ADD so bad that I can barely glass for 30 seconds let alone even if like when I'm glassing a, a mallard feed or something in North Dakota and there's 10,000 of them I mean I could stay in the glass for like 5 seconds but to be comfortable is key right so are you on sticks or a, a monopod with your binoculars or are you just free handing them i know that sounds like an elementary question but i'm right. in my head i'm like you could be there for an hour or two on on that yeah. on that first in those glass right it
1: depends you're, you're hunting man i mean if you're if you're if my if i pull my truck up and i can glass the side of this mountain i'm gonna pick it apart if i see bodies then hell yeah the tripod's coming out the the spot and scopes going on there until I can eliminate the fact that there's no big buck there or there is a big buck there. If there's not, you know, then I'm just moving on. Um, I think it's, I think you're just hunting and you're playing each situation and what's thrown at you. You just got to have to, you have to be able to make a decision of what you're going to do at that time. So if I'm not seeing any deer, I'm not going to waste the time to pull out my spot and scope and spotter and look around. If it's that prime time of the, the morning when the deers should be sticking out like a sore thumb because they're You know, they glow with the morning sunlight and I can see the entire, this entire basin. I'm going to move on to the next basin and do the same exact thing. Um, in the midday, that's when I'll spend a lot more time picking something apart. That's when the tripod will come out. The binoculars will go on the tripod and that's more when I'm gridding in an area and I'm going to spend some time during the middle of the day when the deer aren't moving. That's when you're trying to find something that's in its bed, you know, or that's not as, as visible is when you really need to have that stability. And that's, that's when you put it on a tripod and, and pick it apart Um, but those early morning, late evening hours, you're kind of, you're trying to, trying to cover a lot of country and trying to take advantage of those deer moving around because there's going to be a deer on his feet. It might not be the deer. But by seeing a deer and getting your spot and scope up there, then you got a better chance of finding the deer that's bedded down 30 yards behind him in the brush.
0: What's the first thing that a guy with your experience and knowledge notices on the deer and not just a deer? Is it the depth of their forks? Is it their length? How do you field judge a mule deer and how close do you have to be to really get within, you know, eight or 10 inches you know i, I remember yeah, tony yeah. grimmett in the on all the arizona you know and all the the field judging of an antelope you got to be like 80 i can't field judging an, oh, an yeah, antelope yeah. If, I, if i'm not 50 yards from it they're so hard <laughs> so what about a mule deer is it is yeah. it easier so I, I don't get caught up in
1: score at all if i see a deer that ha- then i'm like well, oh, it's got a cool frame i'm not counting points i'm just like oh yeah that's it if if i see a deer that that you know, that you know is a big deer and you know it's a big deer and I I don't care how many points it is. I don't care what it scores. If it's a big frame and it looks awesome, I'm going to be like, yeah, I want to go chase that deer. If it's preseason and I'm looking for the biggest deer in my area or something unique or special, which, you know, sometimes I'll find a buck like a few years ago. The last time I had an archery tag for mule deer in Nevada, I found a buck that wasn't the biggest buck that I found, but he was the most unique. He had some inlines and he branched off of his uh, you know, off of his forks instead of like a normal four point buck would, and I, I just wanted to go wanted to hunt that deer. So I think it's just a matter of what 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 flips your trigger. You know, this this last year in Idaho, I found a big narrow four point buck that I was thinking was going to go you know mid one eighties, high one eighties, and after I ended up killing him, he's barely one seventy. But that buck was friggin' awesome. You know, I mean, it was just a cool frame, really cool deer. And there was other bigger deer that I had found. They just weren't as accessible. They weren't, they didn't really turn me on like this deer turned me on when I saw him. So it's just, it's all personal. I mean, there's guys like Jason Carter, you know, Greg Krogh. If, you, if, if you're a big deer killing machine and that's what, you've, that's what you've built your life on, and that's what you are into and you want to do, it's a completely different approach than the approach that I take to it. The approach I take to it is I'm hunting this canyon, I'm going to find the biggest deer that I can. I'm going to go kill him. I think the approach of true professionals and guys that are big buck killing machines is they'll get to a canyon, take inventory. Yep, it's a big deer. They'll go to the next canyon, take inventory. That's a big deer. They'll go. And they've picked the entire unit apart. They've checked all their trail cameras and they've compiled it down to, whoa, we got us a friggin' 240 inch buck here. This is all that life is
0: about for the next until that deer's killed or until we hear that somebody's killed it. So are you a mule deer hunter or are you an overall big game hunter? Because when you talk about mule deer, you have a lot of knowledge and passion for mm-hmm. it. A lot of the guys that you've mentioned, a lot of guys that, you know, like the Ryan Hatches or mm-hmm. my, even my cousin Thomas Baker, they're, sure. they're mule deer hunters that will go elk hunting. Mm-hmm. Is that what you are or do you, no. en- do, you, do you enjoy elk as much as you do mule deer? I'm
1: an I'm a, I'm a outdoorsman adventurer that hunts too. You know, like I, I spend a lot of time in the mountains, not during hunting season. I love one of my favorite things probably, probably is my favorite thing to do is in June, July, Don't August. say
0: trail running, dude. No,
1: high mountain, <laughs> high mountain lakes, fly fishing, high mountain lakes. It's my, by far my, my biggest passion. Um, and this year, I've, you know, I filmed one of those things, got the film permits and everything, and film, filmed doing it. And it's probably going to be a flop. But, man, I had a fun time doing it, you know. But I just like being out in the mountains and hunting. Hunting is what you do during that, during hunting season. You know, outside of hunting season, I'm still in the mountains, whether I'm on my mountain bike or just tooling
0: around. Okay, so then if I just said specifically hunting-wise. Big game. all big game. Yeah. Yeah. I like, like you're
1: a bird dude, right?
0: Yeah. I love ducks.
1: Yeah. and You love mule deer too, but ducks is your baby,
0: right? If I see a 180 mule deer or a 200 inch mule deer and there's a couple of thousand mallards over here, I'm going to go hunt mallards. It's a weird deal because most guys that from this, that grew up in this area are going for that mule deer.
1: Yeah. like, like, you know, I'm taking my son down to go shoot a hog in in California this weekend. And and the guy's like, there's turkeys all over. So you want to come shoot a turkey? And I'm, and I'm thinking, yeah, no, I'm good. You yeah, know, I'm see? just taking. I just got back from fish. there
0: shooting a turkey, but I, I yeah. agree. I mean, I, hog hunting's fun. Yeah. So when you, when you, a little bit before you, we got to where we're at now, you talked about mule deer and water. Some of the things that the adversity that that Western big game faces, the hunting, um, the actual habitat, the actual population of that animal species, we have some stuff here in this state. Mm. Talk to me a little bit about your feelings, if you can, on mustangs. On the wild horse, and they're beautiful. They they look awesome. They're they're they're, you know they're Mr. Ed standing out there. But there is a lot that goes into it, right, Tim? As far as I'm I'm going with what you said, mule deer and water. If you can't touch on it, or you're, I know it's a political. I I think it's a political thing. But what are your thoughts on on how many horses we have in this state?
1: You know, I I don't I politics. I don't care about politics. You know, that's going to, politics is going to do its thing whether Tim Burnett gives a crap about it or not. You know, I pay attention to it, but for me, it's more just a from personal experience. And with the, the feral horses, uh, which I'm going to call them, especially here in, in these ranges, you know, they are feral in the Virginia range. They're a feral horse. It's not a wild horse. It's introduced. And that's just the way that it is. You can look at history. There's, there's, there's no proof that needs to be done to prove that. But I grew up Training wild horses that people would adopt from Nevada, bring them up to Idaho, and have my brothers and I train these these horses to become you know pleasure riders or western horses or whatever and I loved those horses like there was some of those that we worked with that were just incredibly smart, you know just athletic and just amazing horses and there were then there were some that probably should have just been turned into dog food, you know um but like I had a have a real passion for the wild horses because of growing up like that I come here to Nevada and I hunt and and even within here especially there's a lot of very limited water holes in some of these units that are close to us and I've spent time on those units when I had that tag and you would watch those Mustangs push deer away and keep those deer off those water holes all day long I I don't know when the deer watered middle of the day if they could sneak in there or at night but those herds of horses would just stomp the crap out of the water holes and, and keep those deer off the water and I think that goes on a lot of different places in the state where the horses are the horse a horse is a lot more aggressive than a mule deer is going to be um, and I think in fact there's a new f- a film that came out I can't remember what it's called uh horse rich dirt poor that the state i don't know if the state produced it or who, who produced it here in Nevada but it kind of goes over the a lot of the situations that we have because it's not like I want the horses to go away. I mean, where we live, they come down in our backyards and the kids love to see them and everything, but it's not, nat- it's not a native species and it's harming the deer and the sheep. And I don't know what it's doing, you know, for elk, probably, probably not much, but in certain areas, it's a problem. It's a, it's a bad, bad deal. And unfortunately it seems like the horses are winning out, you know, the,
0: the, and, and then being a non-hoof species, probably they're, they're the only non-hoof species of of animals in our mountains.
1: Not cloven. Non, yeah, not,
0: you know what I mean. Not Whatever a, they call it. it they go I mean, in with like, these heavy feet and these solid feet, and yeah. they can stomp a spring to death pretty much. And I've seen them go in and just stomp springs to where mm-hmm. the water quits coming out for for however long. And I've seen the same thing when they push an antelope away or keeping the deer out of there. The biggest issue I find is horses
1: don't discriminate on what they're eating or what they're stomping or where you know what they're doing. And they're an aggressive animal. They're a lot more aggressive than a sheep or a deer is going to be. Um, you know, there's you you like to think that there's plenty of habitat for everything out there, but the deer numbers in in most parts of Nevada aren't that great to begin with. There's there's just those few units and few areas where the deer numbers are are really solid, but for the most part. In a lot of these little little microcosms, little pockets, there's not very many deer. Behind my house, we used to see—I used to see bucks up there all the time and lots of deer. You go up there now, and there's thousands of horses that just overrule it. And if you see a deer. It's kind of a rarity. You know, it's an oddity. Where are you, are, you, are you
0: in the southeast part? I'm on the south, southeast, correct. So yeah. all the way to Virginia, or are you like more Demani. So I'm Damani. So you're Damani, yeah, near, tons of horses. Near the high school, school. Yep. Tons yeah. Tons of horses, yeah. all the way from that new Veterans Highway, all the way out there, just everywhere right now. Yeah. And they come down low out of the... And it's not, it's not that the horse is, is what's causing any issues
1: with the mule deer. It's just the fact that my fear is that they're just not being... Man- you can't manage mm-hmm. them. You know, there is no laws in place, or that is. Public. Do the roundups help? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. But if they can, if they can happen, you know, if, if the BLM can can make them happen. But there is, there is. We Remy and I had a meeting with the uh, with Endow and with with the BLM combined. You know, to kind of talk about some of the issues that we had and what what we felt like we could do with our platforms to to help with the cause and everything. And, and Remy's done a few things, and it's like if if the money was there. And the resources, you know, the, the the people and the places to put the horses or things to do with the horses that was publicly sound, that pe- that everybody agreed with was okay. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of solutions that can be done. But the problem is, is not everybody's okay with, with everything that would have to take place for that to happen, for the horse populations to be to be, you know, um, strong. And, and, and that's the thing is the horses are their own worst enemies too. They'll eat themselves out of house at home be, long before they'll ever, um, you know, move into different ranges or anything. They'll starve to death. A horse, will, a horse will stand and just eat all of its food and then stand there and wonder where's the rest, where's some food, you know, they'll starve to death. Where does this problem take place in Idaho as much as, as bad as it is here? Uh, I don't think there's, there's certainly not nearly the amount of wild horses in Idaho is there. But I think if you look at numbers, and I I, I don't quote, I don't, I'm not a horse expert and I'm not, I don't know the numbers. This is all based on stuff that I've read and I've seen and and everything there is the numbers have skyrocketed, you know, with, with, with no way to manage them, no way to have them rounded up. And the the demand for these wild horses isn't what it used to be. I mean, we used to train a dozen of them a summer, you know, I, I doubt people are adopting these horses Anywhere close to the numbers that they that they maybe used to be in the eighties, nineties, and you know whatever. But I just don't think that there's enough interest in them. Other than, oh, they're pretty. You know, they're the wild horses. I just don't think there's a economical demand to have them there because you you don't want to hunt them. You know, they're they're not a, a resource. They're they're just a. Uh, not a nuisance, but there, there's just, there's no value to them really other than aesthetic value and, you know, history of, of how they were released and, you know, the history of the United States, but there's no economic advantage to having them out there. So that's what, that's what part of what plays into the difficulty of how the heck do we manage these animals, you know?
0: So how do we though? Like, is, is it, is it too sad to say that some of them have to go? Is the, is it, is it, will there ever be a bounty put on a wild horse or is that so yeah. politically off the end of the spectrum that you can't, you, you could never even think like that?
1: Yeah. I, I don't ever want to see them, you know, as a, as a huntable, you know, in the big game regulations as something to go hunt. Those conversations have taken place, you know, yeah. I don't want to see that. Um, I still want to see wild horses when I'm out tooling around on my quad and, and different things but the reality of it is, is, is they're multiplying and the the climate is so mild and so neutral here that they can, their, their numbers are just exploding and, but there's nothing, there's no demand for them. Like they're, I mean, you you used to be able to, uh, I I don't know. I just don't know what the, I don't know what the answer is because it's a farm, it's a farm animal, right? It's a utility animal that is used on farms or whatever, but, but as society is as, as as we're evolving it's it's not it's not needed as much as it used to be so it's it's really hard to put a put i guess a, a value on what a horse what a
0: wild horse should be be there
1: for you know
0: yeah, I, I don't think that they're serving a purpose at all out in the wild is the gist of what I'm hearing you say. And I'm other, not saying other that than, you
1: are. Other, I, I think there is a huge value to someone coming to the United States or to Nevada and, and being able to drive the roads and be like, there is a wild horse right there, you know, or a wild Mustang, whether it's wild Mustang or feral or whatever else. I think there's some value to that, right? I think there's some there's some there's some things that are inspirational about that because to me, I think of the old west and how you know the country evolved and how those horses came to be here. There's there's more to the to the story than just the horses. It's everything a lot of everything else wrapped around it. So I like the fact that they're here for sure. I mean as a kid, like we would drive up towards Chalice and try to find the wild horses because that was one of the few places where we knew that there was wild horses when we saw them, it was like this was the coolest thing in the world. We saw wild horses. So I I don't want that to go away. But is it kind of the time, same way a
0: Native American, I didn't mean to interrupt you, sure. but is it the same way that a Native American would have looked at buffalo?
1: Maybe. Maybe. Other than they looked at buffalo as a food source. That's a the that's a difference. Is a, a buffalo source. is a food source. What about a, the coyote? Because yeah. that's
0: a spiritual animal to the Native Americans too. Yeah. Now, are, but are nati- so, coyotes are native. Coyote's kind of the same thing.
1: And we're just kind of seeing that re- revert back to the same situation as the horses, right? If they don't want to allow coyote hunting, which they're trying to push hard against, Right. Right. What's going to happen to the coyote population? It's going to be out of control. It's a dog. They're already out of control. There's no other value to a coyote other than to a coyote hunter, right? So to a horse, what's the value to a wild horse other than to a rancher? But rancher's got his $5,000 quarter horse. He's not going to replace his... A rancher or farmers aren't going to replace their quads and their side-by-sides and their trucks with horses because they don't need to, you know? 50 years ago, they might have needed to. They don't need to today. So it's hard to know what that horse is worth or what's it, what's it there for? Cause it's not a game animal and I don't think it should ever be a game animal. Uh, my, my opinions on that may change over time, but right now I don't feel like that's. that's I wouldn't, the ar- I
0: wouldn't point. argue that, but a coyote, you can try to keep a coyote in check and the way that they populate and the way that they oh, multiply okay. is amazing. You can't kill enough coyotes. A horse can't multiply like that. No. So. Could we get that population of the feral horses or the wild mustangs down at one point and Mm -hmm. keep them in check and start over knowing that they can't populate like that? Yeah. Or is that ignorant to say?
1: No, I I think there's definitely tools and resources. When I say resources, there's the ability in place to round up horses and move them. You know, whether you're moving them and they're going to a, a factory in Canada and they're being turned into glue and f- dog food and whatever else, you know, as, as crappy as that may sound to some people, but at least there's a value to them. At least they're being used and they're not starving to death in the Virginia range here in, in Reno. You know, at least there's some value placed on them. And when there's value placed on an animal, then it'll be protected. If, if there's no value on it and it becomes a, a f- you know, a, a bounty you say, or whatever else, we can go out and kill a hundred of them tomorrow. You know, I mean, you could, you could go out and, and lay them down, but, I just don't know. I mean, it's, well, it's you, ha, you have a to see. you
0: have a sentimental value to horses, but you also understand that they need to be controlled. Dave Stanley, who yep. you met earlier, mm-hmm. he made his whole living in quarter horses, and, and, and uh, he held horse auctions all over the country. Mm-hmm. He'd raise, you know he'd bring these horses into the stable and he'd raise them and they'd train them and then he'd go they'd go to auction. But when you have the conversation that we're having with him, it's kind of the same thing. Is that? There's a fine line to walk there, but when I'm in your area where you live and I'm around the old gun club or I'm driving that's on the-
1: exactly where we live is in the gun club, right next to
0: it. And you like, there, you, there's nothing, I've seen a hundred horses down there that low at one time. Mm-hmm. What is the benefit of that? Aesthetically, it's pretty. Your kids see them, yes, but is there a danger? Is there something that's going wrong? Are they dirty? Are, are they defecating all over the streets and making it a, an unhealthy environment? Or is it just something that growing up in Nevada, we've been trained to hate the horse because hunters in Nevada don't want to hear another thing about a feral horse or a wild mustang because they are tough on our mule deer and our antelope and our sheep populations.
1: It may be part of it, but if you go look at those horses, they're not healthy. You know they're skin and bones. They're they're down there for a reason because that's where the the closest water. water is, and because people are you know shoveling carrots and stuff out the back of their truck. Those horses are not healthy because there's too many of them, um, and there's just not enough habitat for them to 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 be healthy and to survive there. If those numbers could be trimmed down in half, you know, or whatever, I don't know what those numbers might be. Well, horses might be a hell of a lot more healthy, you know, and more beautiful to see. And there might be a lot more colts running around and whatever else. But as it is right now, I think the number one food source for the mountain lions back there is wild horse,
0: feral horse. Sean Shea would probably say the same thing. <laughs> I've heard some stories about some of the, some yeah. of the things that some of the, the cougar hunts that there, there's actually a mountain lions that were nicknamed, after the horses and stuff, really? so there, there's a there's a crazy amount of horses in this state. I just made the drive from from Reno to Urington, and mm-hmm. going from Fernley, I went the I went the old school way mm-hmm. from Fernley to Silver Springs. It's amazing how many horses are in that somewhere. range. Yeah. They're they're everywhere out there. But on the on the kind of the same deal. As a, as a hunter, one of our responsibilities that we always talk about or, you know, one of the big initiatives that I'm, you know, I'm really into is getting new people involved as far as future generations, whether it's your kids. Mm-hmm. If you weren't a hunter, just like when you grew up, your dad wasn't a hunter, but this guy that brought you into his basement got you into hunting. If in Nevada with the water situation, Tim Burnett has a, 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 an opportunity to introduce somebody to archery hunting big game in the state of Nevada. Is it a no-no, an absolute anti-religious, the religion of archery hunting to set up on a water hole in a state like Nevada? Is that a no-no? Is it spot and stock only? And does it drive you nuts to see a blind or somebody that's actually found a water hole where you know the animals have to go because there's not many of them? Is that a no-no in a state like Nevada? No, I don't know.
1: It's an individual thing. Um, I've hunted on water before. Um, you know, I've shot an antelope on water before here in Nevada. I haven't hunted over water here in Nevada since, you know. Um, I I don't do it here in Nevada. I, I do it in Idaho. I, I've done it. Just sat on water holes and different things. Not to say that I wouldn't. If, if the buck that I found, if that was the only way that I felt like I could kill him, I'd probably do it. Um, because there's, you know, you're only there a certain certain amount of time. I, I don't know what is ethical and what's not ethical or whatever else. Is it different than baiting, you know, or any of those things? I don't know. Um, that's that's why it's it's kind of left up to interpretation for each individual hunter what they want to do. Will I hunt over bait in Oklahoma on my farm that I lease there? No. You know, it's just something that I don't personally want to do will I hunt over bait for a black bear? No, because I've done it and I don't like it. You know, I've killed a bear over, over bait. I don't like it and, or I didn't like it. And so I haven't done it it since. Was it cereal and honey or what what was in the bear? I don't even know. I don't even know. Was it in Canada? Um, This was in Canada. Yeah. This was actually in, um, New Brunswick, Canada. New Brunswick. Yeah. The cool thing about that was I was able to go to Boston and go out and you'll throw in some lobster pots and actually have a great time with my buddies out there before we drove up there and, and hunted bear. And, you know I'm not going to say that's right or wrong or anything else it's just not for me it's not not my thing um so it's would hungry. you ever
0: see a bear in Canada if you had to spot and stock them if if you probably n- not is that why that, that's how they I, have I mean they bait the white that, tail up there too right The country's so
1: thick i mean that's the same same way with Texas or anything else you know if you want to see critters that's that's the way it's done um yeah it's just it's just not my thing it's not not what I want to do same same reason why. Like in Oklahoma, it's legal to to put out corn and everything else. Did me and my buddies do it? No, we just didn't want to. We chose that this is this is not how we want to hunt these deer in here. So we played off of everybody else's feeders, you know, in between or whatever. So it, you're kind of still playing the same game
0: in the game that we're in, that we make our livelihood in. I will be the first one to say that it's the, the hardest thing for me to watch on a TV show is a Canadian baited black bear hunt. I, I, I don't get them. I understand it. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it. I just when I watch it, I'm just like, Man, it's just, but, it's, 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 but there's some guys
1: out there that that's the, that's their jam, man. You really? Know, they, they love to see. And, and the cool thing about, about a, a baited situation or, you know, a water hole or whatever else is, is, is if you can do your, if you can be still, those animals will come in and they'll be relaxed and you can see them interact with each other and, and in their environment in a totally unmolested, unstressful type of a way. And that's cool. That's really cool. You can let the bear turn or whatever it might be turn and you get a completely ethical shot and, and make an ethical kill. Pollute. So a there's a lot of value to that. And again, you can be selective too. When you see a, a, a big boar on the hillside at 400 yards away, standing next to a sow or whatever else, you may, you may not be able to have a, a close enough look to tell which one is which you might shoot or You might shoot a small bear. When you get up there, you're disappointed. The, the baiting, at least you can size it up, measure it. I mean, there's definitely a lot of value to that from a, from a, just a sheer and take the, take the filming and everything else and throw it out the window from a sheer hunting standpoint. I don't enjoy that. You know, I I love sitting in a tree stand for, for whitetails. Love the crap out of that. I just don't like sitting over a bait. It's just not my thing.
0: Could you tell me why? Is there a reason?
1: Why don't some guys like blondes? You know, why don't some guys like brunettes? But, right? are, but is I it too know. easy
0: for you? Because you know they're coming there because that cereal's in that barrel. No,
1: because it's not easy. It's know? not easy. I mean, the bear know, the, the, those bears have been there long enough. They know when you're in that tree or not. They know? do? I mean, yeah.
0: There's been, st- there's been videos that I've seen sh- where like 30 of them come in, they one pro-
1: by one. They got to know that there's somebody there. Those things are so frigging smart. So they trust you then that I mean, you're not going
0: to smoke them with an arrow?
1: But again, I'm not a bear. I'm not the expert. You know, this is just my perception. So everything that I say probably pisses half the people off, you know, <laughs> whatever else. And that's, that's the thing is, is like, I don't profess to be a prefer- pro about anything. This is just my experience and what I do and what I don't.
0: Uh, do you enjoy bear hunting at all? You said that you don't like going to Alaska and hearing about a brown or a grizzly. And your friends are like, yeah, that's nothing. But do you enjoy bear hunting as a sport?
1: You know, I've, I've killed three bears
0: and I, the one
1: was, you know, uh, had to kill it type of a thing. So I wasn't even, I was hunting deer. So that really, I can't even really say, well, I've killed one over bait and one, you know, you see it and you shoot it with a, and, and so I'm not going to say I'm a, I'm a bear hunter. It's, it's just not my jam. It's not my thing. I, I don't feel the need every spring to have to go out and chase bears you know and and kill two bears up in manitoba or whatever those guys are doing that's just not my thing how old are you Tim?
0: i'm 43 we're the same age nice so you're 21 years old you haven't killed an elk with a bow you've been unsuccessful you've killed a couple with a rifle in the state of idaho Mm -hmm. you got a brother named adam that's younger than you he's four or five years younger than you he's looking up to you as, as you guys are coming up now you're his idol now are you guys going out to the Sears Roebuck Company down at the mall in Idaho, the closest store you can to your remote home and getting a video camera with a VHS tape in it and you're starting to film your hunts now, knowing that that story that you wrote when you were five or six or seven years old is now maybe I'm, I'm addicted to this. I'm going to make hunting movies. Is it start then? Now I want to start getting into this solo hunter deal because yeah. this is the most gotcha. interesting thing yep. about you to me with my short time in knowing you as an individual and a potential friend. What you do with your show is really, really freaking badass. So does it start right then when you're 21 or did it start before that or did it, did you, was it right in the college years? How did, how did, when did the video camera pop into your hands? Did you, did you really say Sears Roebuck? Yeah, you did. Okay. Well, I mean, I just assume so that's where you bought your video that is,
1: camera. That is. Wow, what a call. Yeah, in I
0: swear on my life I never knew I that. I know. Well, nobody knows
1: <laughs> that. I don't think I've ever told that story. <laughs> no. So at first in high school, my dad was a school teacher, so he came home with one of those big shoulder-mounted cameras once for the art and drama, whoever it was in the school. So we had played around with that a ton when we were in high school and junior high, and I was always up with it up on the hill trying to film different things, but when I got out of high school and started going to college, the, the first thousand bucks that I made, I remember it was $994 and some change. I went to Sears and I bought a Sony high eight video camera. And I think I bought one tape cause I, I didn't want to spend over a thousand bucks. So I got the camera and the tape for like 995 bucks. And that's what I started filming my hunts with. In fact, the first episode that I filmed for another show that went to air was with that Sony high eight video camera. Um, it went to air on the sportsman channel. So at that time, you know you're 19, 20, 21 years old, um, and that's when you just start. That's when I started filming everything. I'd go go home on the weekends, and I'd hike up behind the house, and I'd just film elk and deer and everything else that I could with that camera. Just getting to know a camera. And at that point, I'm not filming myself. I'm just filming what's around me. And then I realized that there's no story to that, just filming animals. Because yeah. one of my favorite uh, film series that I that I used to watch was Grunko Films. And it was this guy that just went to the parks and he would film all these elk and you'd hear all the sounds and everything and then he was just narrating over it. And so I thought that that was the way that I w- wanted to do it. Um, between him and... Um, who was the other guy? Marty Stoffer, You know, where Marty would film all these things. But the cool thing about Marty was he was in, he would interject the human element into the animals situation so you know he would he would talk about these animals as though they were part of his family and then he would interject his family into these films where it was him and his kids and his wife you know, going into this area to film these bears and everything. I thought that that was just amazing. Was that Mutual of uh, Omaha? And this was Marty
0: Stoffer. Um Was he the host of Mutual of Omaha? Wild America? Wild no, King? that was, um, I can't remember the name of that guy. Okay. Marty I'm um, It's ringing the bell, but so is he hunting or is he just filming? No, is it just no, documentaries? He's, he's totally just documenting these animals and he's, he's, In a way, it's
1: probably kind of liberal-esque because he's humanizing these animals in a way. But at the same time, he's using, he's telling, he's bringing his own family into the story and into the situation. And um, just kind of more as just an adventure, just kind of this showcasing the animals, this is what it was. And I was enamored by by how he did it, by how he voiced it over and, and the story that it was. That just drew to me. And at that same time, you know, you're starting to see hunting television kind of come out with TNT and and ESPN had some hunting on it. And hunting television was completely the opposite. It was, it was weird to me, you know, but it was hunting. And you could see hunting. So I kind of I feel like I got my style more off of what Marty Stoffer was doing and more off of what um, you know Grunko films and and some of these other old films that the old timers were doing. And that just kind of that's just kind of how I how I took to the production and end.
0: And this is twenty years old. You're in college right now. Oh yeah, yeah. What are you studying?
1: Um, I was living in a college town. We'll just say I <laughs> made it through one semester of college,
0: and that was it. So how are you going to make a living? In your mind, what are you what are you going to go do as a, as an adult now in your early twenties to get a well, paycheck? Was so it was there a paycheck. No, at that age,
1: at that age, I didn't know people made a living doing it. But I, I was just, I was going to run a keep working at the carpet store. I was going to manage the carpet store. You know? Your dad had a carpet store. No, when I went to when I first went to college, I went to work for this carpet store when I was going to school uh, installing because I had grown up, I knew how to install. So my older brother Troy was already there working. And so I just went to work installing. And what had happened was I got to become pretty good friends with some of the salesmen. And I would moonlight and they would pay me 25 bucks a pop to go and measure their jobs that they would sell. So they would sell a house full of carpet. Well, I would just go and measure it out. I'd make 25 bucks just for measuring the thing. And as I was in these homes, these people were asking me what their quotes would be. And so I learned real quick that if I got the prices from the salesman, I could measure it up, quote the customer right in the home and close the sale right now. Within less than a year, I was a salesman. And doing that for myself, Next thing you know, I'm making a potload of money, you know, doing a a great, great job. Well, I I didn't want to go to school at that point. I figured out how to make money, you know. And so that's kind of where it took off for me was I knew how to make money with a job and with a sales career. But at that point, I really didn't have a clue that you could actually make money in the hunting space.
0: So, you film. You're filming. You're a videographer now for another show, not full time. But you, you, when you get out of college, you had some opportunities to be a cameraman. Is no, it, no, you did. No, this was after. That was that was a long. That time. was long yeah, after. Yeah. So did you continue all the way from your 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 carpet store, your carpet company job? You're filming all of your hunts now every every season in Idaho. At, at that point. At that point, I wasn't filming hunts. I was just filming animals.
1: the animals. Yeah, so I when
0: did the bell go off that, that hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to film myself hunting? Or did your brother say, hey, hold the camera on me while I shoot this <laughs> elk? You yeah. know, we never even thought about filming the hunts.
1: It was, it was more just filming the animals and running the camera. We didn't look at it as, and, and I don't think at that point, you know, it, I don't think at that point we were successful enough as hunters to even think about throwing a camera into the mix. We're just kids. You, you know, learning about these things. I don't remember filming a hunt until mid twenties, you know, mid twenties, I think, is when it was.
0: So it's a few years after Yeah. It's a few yeah. years after you get this Sears and Robot camera. Right, right. So and I had just
1: I had just tons and tons of footage of just just wildlife footage. You still have elk. it? Elk. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's gotta be I awesome, hope the tapes huh? still play
0: somewhere. That's yeah. that'd be cool. Yeah. So Okay, so if you, if you finally you've in your mid twenties, you say that we're going to film our hunts. Mm-hmm. Did it start out as I'm going to go out and film myself on this whole deal? Because to me, this is going to be like the uh, years and years of an apprenticeship to yeah. be able to get to the point to where you and Remy are now. Like to, it, it, right. it blows my mind. I'm being serious. Right, like right. it's hard to do. It's, it's got to be hard to do, and I want to get into why I think that, but did it start right away when you went out and said, I'm going to film my hunt? Were you turning the camera on you and, and getting different angles? I and? don't
1: remember ever turning the camera on me until I was actually filming for a hunting show, and what had happened was I had met a guy through another guy I met, um, and the name will be familiar. I met Jeff Danker. Um, this was, I don't know, 2002, maybe. maybe? Met Jeff Danker. He came out with a friend a guy that he had met to Idaho um, to go on this bear hunt up in Chalice. Well, he and my this other guy that I knew, he was kind of the mutual in-between between Jeff and I. This guy's like, I don't know shit about hunting Blair in, in Idaho. Up in Chalice, you want to go. And so I said, sure. And so he says, Well, why don't you come up and you can film film Jeff, and then we'll just go on this hunt. Well, when they came to my house, we met him at my parents' house up in Idaho. And I got to know Jeff and we hit it off right off the bat. You know, a younger version of Jeff was a pretty fun dude, you know, just pretty lively, great personality. And we hit it off right off the bat. And Jeff was like, well, I don't I don't care about killing no bear. Why don't I film you, you know? And so he went up, we went to Chalice and he filmed me hunting, hunting these bears. And we decided we wanted to do it off the ground and o- over bait, but we're sitting on the ground. And I can remember the bears coming in and, and nothing ever went to the bait. We never killed a bear, but I kind of struck up a friendship with Jeff at that time, you know, and he was starting a show, Buck Ventures, that was going to air on the Sportsman channel at some point in time, or actually, no, I think he was produced. He was in a show that just hunt or some other show, real hunting or something that was going to be in Texas or something. So he was kind of just getting into it himself. So we struck this this friendship and communication that that lasted a couple of years and then I was able to become a part of Buck Ventures and so he had Buck
0: Ventures before he had Major League, correct? With Duff yes. and Chipper,
1: yes, yes. He was part of another show. I can't remember what that was. He, you know, he maybe can write in. He has whatever. Buck. He
0: has Buck Ventures again correct. now, though. I yes. mean, that's what his main deal is now. Yeah. yeah. So, you're, so now you get on with him on this show yep. called Buck Ventures, correct? And that we went to the air on the Sportsman
1: Channel the first year, I think, in two thousand four, I believe that was. And so I went out to Oklahoma and. You know, met the rest of the guys and and did some whitetail hunts. And that's when I first started hunting whitetails, was at the same time. And so, um, you know, it got to the point where it got serious enough that I sold my home in Reno and I moved out to Oklahoma to become partners with Jeff with with Buck Ventures for a year. Well, it lasted a year, is Mm. what it did. And What did? The company? No, Buck Ventures kept going. I mean, it's been successful since then, for sure. Um, What it was, was I just... The Midwest wasn't for me. I wanted to move back home. My wife wanted to move back home. Um, you know, I mean, it wasn't all rosy. It wasn't all there. There was no money to be made at that time. I had to get a job. Jeff, Jeff had to get a job. You know, and and so things just kind of split, and we we went our ways. Well, in doing that, I had learned a lot about the production because I would go to the studio with their producer every day, and I would or, or every day that we were in the studio and learned and watched how he would edit and just learned the entire process. Because I knew at that point that I wasn't a very good team player. Um, I didn't take orders very well. And I was too free thinking that I really wanted to do my own thing. And so from an early time, I thought, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it all. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hunt. I'm going to film. I'm going to edit, produce. I'm going to sell sponsorships. I'm just going to run this like a business, like I was successful Back in the day with the carpet store and, and with my career, with my other jobs, I was going to make this hunting thing successful. You know, I'm, I was like, I'm frigging going to do it. This is going to be my business, um, and my livelihood. So I learned everything that I could in the time that I had with their producer. When we decided to move back to Idaho, so we were only in Oklahoma for a year. When we decided to move back to Idaho, I bought a computer and Final Cut Pro and the whole software just scraped up as much, you know, all the money that I could muster to put into this computer, and then I self taught myself how to edit video.
0: So you're editing the show, too? I am. Yeah. To this day.
1: Yeah. So some of the episodes, I have a, a good friend of mine, Jason Smith. He'll do some of the episodes. Um, you have I no employees busy.
0: for Soul Hunter.
1: No technical employees. No. I have. So a lot you of don't sub- have a sale, you don't
0: have a salesman that has to fly over and meet with Leopold or somebody. No, I
1: do. I mean, do, do you? No. No.
0: I need, that's one. probably
1: why I'm not very successful with all my sponsors is because the ones that I am successful with, I've got a personal relationship with, but I'm not, I'm not one to, you know, I'm not a late nighter. I'm the first
0: thing to. that's coming to my mind though, is that if you're running the camera and you're doing the hunting and you're doing the bookkeeping and you're doing the editing and the post-production and the color correction and the audio and sending it to the network and, and selling and, right. and all this, does, is hunting still fun? Oh heck yeah so so yeah. when people say, "Man, you got a dream job, you go, "I agree," yeah. or are you like, "Man, you don't want to do the behind the scenes shit that you goes know, into this,
1: right? Hunting's only part of it how many how many, how many days a year are you going to hunt uh, uh, if I go on six hunts a year, I'm lucky, and if those are all ten day hunts, that's only sixty days. What am I going to do with the rest of my time right So I love the production process. I see myself in retirement or in my old you know in my not too soon future producing a lot of other. what content.
0: do you mean not too soon? You're acting uh, like we're old, dude. Well... We're not even close to retirement. But we've been in the industry for 20 years. near Well, 15
1: years, let's say.
0: So, you know... Well, you started in 04 with Buck Ventures about so yeah. about 15 years. Yeah. Well, you went to Air in 04. Correct. Correct. I... Uh, So
1: for me, it's the whole, it's the whole life. It's the whole lifestyle. It's everything wrapped around it. I don't, if, if, if my job was to be Chad Belding and just go out and hunt my brains out all the time, you know, and I had guys that were my salesmen that were doing my sponsorships and I had a production team and everything else. And all I had to do to hunt, I would have quit a long time ago because I don't like to hunt that much. You know, I'm letting my love hunting, but I don't think I could hunt 12 weeks out of the year. I just don't think I could do it. Really? Um, no, If you were c- a duck
0: hunter, you can.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> no, there's a lot of other things I enjoy, you know. I mean, I saw the golf clubs leaned up against your fence. That's there's, not mine. Those
0: are my brothers. There's
1: a lot of things that I enjoy, you know. Uh, like I what? A, what do you like I've got do? a young family. I love going to the ball games. I Where love
0: at? Frisco or here? Here.
1: Well, when, when I say ball games, I'm talking Little League, you know. Oh, or whatever. League. I you love don't. going up to watch my son at, at golf practice now that he's kind of aged out of Little League. I just, I love my kids a ton, and I love, I love... You know, my extended family. There's, there's a lot of things in life that I like to do outside of hunting. Hunting is, is a major part of my life, and obviously it's my business and my livelihood, and I found a lot of great success with that. But it's not, it's not when I wake up in the morning, I don't think
0: about hunting. Do you think about the hunting business when you wake up oh, in the yeah. morning? Yeah. Do you enjoy the but hunting, you know the business of the hunt?
1: Had I found success in something else, like I, I, I believe I would have been successful doing any. Business that I was passionate about,
0: Tim Burnett's Carpeteria.
1: Oh, dude, I'd be, I'd You'd have, be rocking it. Oh, I offered to buy the carpet store from from Candle, You know,
0: way back. You would have never met. You probably would have never met Jeff Danker because you would not have had time to go to Chalice to chase those bears.
1: You know, but if if
0: yeah, exa-
1: things. I I may not have had the career path that I've had, but I guarantee I would have been successful and happy. You know, I just know that I would
0: have. So does that matter to you though? Or are you so thankful and humbled by the fact that you get to call yourself? You make a professional living being an outdoorsman. You're a hunt. You're a professional hunter. You make a living and take care of your family through hunting. I don't see it that way. What do you see it as? I, I, uh,
1: I work hard. I just, I just go to work every day. I know
0: that, but you're and a hunter. Be, it, I, I can tell you're a well, hard worker. That's
1: such a small part of it. I get to go on some awesome hunts, but the work doesn't take place on the hunts. The work takes place. It seems to of
0: me that your hunts are the hard, as far as production goes. It seems to me that your hunts are the hardest, the most work ever to go to be wrapped up into an actual filmed you know, hunt. That's what's awesome about it. Okay, but you are working. Yeah, this yeah, is the, like. It doesn't feel like work. No, it, it's because.
1: I, I guarantee it's easier for me to go out and film my own hunt than it is for you to have a cameraman and somebody else. There's and no way. To There's no, no
0: freaking way. I can way. go and it's
1: easier for me to go kill a big mule deer my way than it is for you to go kill a big mule deer. No way. Dog. I know those ducks are coming to that hole. I stayed out of it for three days. That's a duck. It would be damn near impossible for me to go kill a duck my way. But you could go and kill a duck your way, easy.
0: It'd probably be impossible. I couldn't film my own. It, might, no be, it might be pretty impossible for a mule deer hunter to be successful with three cameramen p- p- clawing yeah. behind him all day, too. I, I think what someone
1: sees at the end, you know, after all the production and everything takes place, I think what someone sees is, um, it's, it's TV. It's it, even though it is real and it's all legit and it's all what happened on the hunt has it happened, it looks a hell of a lot harder than it actually was to create it because in the editing process, I'm taking out a lot of time. You know, I might have four hours of footage that I crunch down into 20 minutes. Sure. And that's where, that's why I'm really excited about this year because I'm actually releasing f- fuller length versions of those hunts. So you can see a lot more of the process
0: online. Yeah. MoTV. No, I don't know. MoTV, my <man>. ass. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? Timburnett.com. Solo no, no, so so, so honor,
1: oh. and then we're on Amazon, you know, we got a pretty strong YouTube following. So it's like, I'm excited about, I, I, I think if anything else, I love creating content. And, and even when I was producing some other shows for some other, some other brands, you know, I produced a, a little mini series called Prime Pro for Prime and G5. I freaking love that. You know, we did three, we did four episodes. Prime Ammo? Uh, Prime Pro. Prime, Prime Bows. Oh, so Bows. So Prime okay. Archery, bows, yeah. Okay. I love that. It was great. It was something that I could step out of the solo hunter realm and actually produce some content to value. And that's where my buddy Jason Smith, um, helped with the production side of that. I did a show, uh, for one year on sportsman channel called off grid hunter that I did for the, um, an ad agency that I, that I worked with because they wanted more, they liked the way that I produce content. They wanted more content to put their products. So we created this show wrapped around a lot of their products and a lot of their brands. I loved doing that. I hated dealing with the ad agency and having to, you know, promote or not promote, but had to run ads for products and different things. But the actual production side of it, I just love it. And and that's I think what keeps me excited about solo hunter is is one being able to go on these hunts and different hunts, but what I can do with that footage when I get back home. I mean what, I, what, I guess, what season are you
0: in? This season Eight, ten
1: Tanelair 10. 10 this year. That's what we just aired. With if if the outdoor channel, you know, if they if they renew my contract, you never know.
0: Listen up, Mitch. Mitch.
1: Actually, actually, the other day, um, Monty called me. Monty, didn't. I was like, know. Monty, I don't. I'm sorry. I Tenacious D? I don't know you. Tenacious D? I, yeah, I said, I have I've known the other guys. I've never met you. I apologize. You Why know? would Monty Daniels be calling you? You know what they're trying to, they're just, I think they're the networks. You are to trying to with, f-
0: Greg? Hell?
1: So from early on, it was always um, Jeff, yeah. Wayne, for, for the long time. And then once all that stuff transpired, then it was Mitch for a year. And then Santino was there for a short amount yeah. of time. Mm-hmm. Worked with Santino and Mitch. And then Santino. How oh, it's uh, Monty, I guess. And Monty's been there for a long time.
0: He was with Sportsman. I mean, way back. I just
1: don't. I don't.
0: He's from Milwaukee. He's from knowing. the corporate office of Sportsman Show.
1: Seems like a good dude. But, you know, I'm, I'm awesome. the type that, and even with a lot of my sponsor contracts, and sometimes it gets me in trouble, and, and, sometimes, and most of the time it works great, is, is I just like to do my job, you know. And once something works, like... I understand the outdoor channel format and platform really, really well. I know how to produce my content when it's due. I know what, what they need and it's a process that, that I just got down pat. So I don't want to screw with that. Why, why
0: would you have to, I don't get what you're trying to tell me right
1: now.
0: Um, I wouldn't have to, I just, I like that. Like I like TV. I like the fact that I can go hunt in the fall. So are you thinking about not being on TV anymore? Oh, I've always, I've
1: always threatened that.
0: Why though? Is there, is, is TV dying?
1: No, no, TV's, well, yeah, I guess it depends on how you look at it. You know, the numbers they're giving me, yeah, they're in 10 million less households this year than they were last year. Is that dying? Maybe, you know, I don't, I don't, is there still huge value in being on television for me? Heck yeah, I, I love being on TV. I I have my own products and my own brand that I sell. And when the TV show airs, we sell a lot of product. we um, have certain sponsors that love the fact that we're on TV. Most of my sponsors, Don't give a rip if I'm on TV, you know? So it's just, it's all depends. You have to base it on when you're looking at, you know, all you got, you new guys that are wanting to get into this and create your own content or your own brand or whatever else, you got to look at where the demand is and you got to look at where your partners want to direct you or where, where, where you need to be. If that's not television, don't be on television. You know, there's huge opportunities digitally and with your own over the, you
0: know, your own platforms. God, wouldn't the Outdoor Channel be, love to hear what we're talking about Oh, I, right I You know,
1: I had these open, last year, last year, I wasn't going to be on the Outdoor Channel. He was like, Mitch, you know what? I'm not buying airtime. I'm not playing this game. I'm not, I'm done. None of my sponsors are, are interested in paying that much for commercial time. So I left, you know. Well, then I had some, of, some sponsors come to me and say, hey, we want to be on your show, but we need commercial time. So I go back to the network and. Don't old, I'm back on the network, you know? So, so you took a year off at of the OC? No, I was going to. You were going, going to. to. You walked out of the office hey, here's and said, the, Here's the thing is, I don't make money on the outdoor channel, you know? The outdoor channel is a platform where we put our content, where we get a lot of eyeballs, and then our sponsors pay us for those eyeballs, right? Sure. Their impressions, because we don't make any money if our sponsors don't make any
0: money. Right.
1: I also have a brand, so I know the value of the eyeballs that are on the TV. I, I still make money on those eyeballs, but I make a lot more money on my digital eyeballs from my own brand. A lot of brands, I think, are kind of seeing that same. It's, it's, it may not be that they're seeing that same result, but it's that they can quantify that result. They can look at their ROI and say, we spent this much money digitally. We got this many
0: impressions because it's all trackable. You keep saying that you have my own, quote, unquote, my own brand. And I know you do. Yeah. When did you know you did? Because uh, I, I guarantee I, it wasn't in the first couple of years of TV. No, I didn't buy
1: I didn't buy hats for the first. I think I first came out with hats in season five or something like that. So five years ago. And that's the, what's the first thing you, somebody does when they want to start a brand? Buy hats and t-shirts. To give away or yes. sell. Spend a couple thousand bucks, buy hats and t-shirts. Is that the way to start a brand? Maybe. I don't know. For me, it was when there was a demand, enough demand there, enough emails coming in and people asking for the apparel or different things that, that that's when it became a brand.
0: So do you offer a Tim Burnett, Remy Warren, solo hunter school on how to freaking do what y'all do where nah. a guy can come in and learn how to go track a mule deer and film it? Yeah, you know, I've toyed around with the idea of putting a
1: course together, but I don't. I'd come to it. I want to learn how
0: you do this. It's not what's, not the, my thing. what's the brand then? That's Is not it happening? I'm it... not
1: interested in being an educator, really. Why? I'm interested in going on hunts.
0: What if per- people want to learn from you, Tim? I know there's a demand there. I get asked for it all the time. Okay, then why wouldn't you want to? Why, why can't you? There's a, a earnings potential there, a revenue stream. Yeah, but it's not. that's not what it's
1: about for me. I, I'm not an educator. I don't, I don't want to be an educator. Like I want to be a mentor and I, there's a lot of people that I'm mentoring right now and that, and then there's other paid clients that I'm consulting for right now. I I like that part of it, but I have such a hard time with grasping the fact that I'm a professional and a lot of it comes, stems back from the early days when I first got started. I thought I was pretty big shit. I thought I was I thought I was you know,
0: going to be this hunting TV star, and I let my ego get away from me for a while. I wanted to ask you about that because you, I love when you say, I love going to watch my son's Little League game and my son's golf practice. You take your family and push them that way just for a second. Take the family and the wife and your love and your admiration, all of it, and your extended family. To do what you've done, okay, and I, I'm not kissing your ass, but you've created a show. You've created a national brand. You're the host of a national TV show. I know that you can sit here four feet, four and a half feet away from me at this table and tell me that you don't look at yourself as professional. I get that. I hate, I don't, when people come up to me and say, hey, can I get a picture with you? I still go, why? I mean, I'm like, it still blows my mind, right? right, right. And I don't, I I, I don't fear away from it, but it just makes me go, you really want your picture with a duck hunter that Mm -hmm. is an average duck hunter at best, right? I mean, I I tell everybody in the world, I'm an average duck hunter at best. I'm a below average duck caller at best. So ego in this game can you can you be successful in it though without that mindset of a of a it's it's not arrogance it's not condescending talking down to somebody but i don't think that you or you hear waddell i am a big fan of what waddell has created as far as a culture of hunters i think that he is one of the guys that is very very good on camera right. don't know anything about his business mind or his business sense or his i don't care about any of that i don't know him like that but he's one of my favorites to watch on tv he has an ego mm-hmm. It doesn't mean he's an arrogant piece of shit because i think he's a great guy at a few of the meetings i've been in him he's always treated me very nice you had to have an ego at one time before the kids and you know that you things change once people come into your life like that i get that but tim burnett had to be this guy going dude I'm on to something here. This is this is unreal. People are coming up to me going, "Are you freaking kidding me? You guys just pulled that off?" That's how I look at it when I watch the Solo Hunter. So, when was it that how mature did you have to become as a man to be like, "Hey man, this isn't worth having an ego about. There's way bigger fish to fry in life than than being a TV personality or a or a leader of a company or a brand that I started." Yeah. Does that make sense what I'm going um, with that? Yeah, I I
1: think when the when the ego hit me was was in those early years the early first couple of years um, and the relationship with my wife was not good you know and and we're living in Oklahoma and you're being told that um you're going to be successful you know the show's going to be popular you're going to be you're going to be you know a pro hunter for the rest of you. you're going to make a living doing this and i let my ego get away with me. Like I, I changed, I became a person that isn't who I am. I was, you know, spending money to go on hunts all over that I should not have been on or shouldn't have been doing. And just was so wrapped up into the fact that I was going to be popular and that I was going to be this TV person. And that was long before any of the popularity quote unquote popularity ever came, you know? And then I got kicked in the balls, you know? And then it's like, it's like, um, you realize that that's not me. That's not what I want. You know, I'm a pretty shy individual to begin with. And for me to change personalities like that, I, it didn't take me very long to recognize that that wasn't me. My wife was telling me that wasn't me. This was before my, my, I only had one son, you know, my, my son at the time. But I, I just wasn't me. And that's a lot of what attributed to Jeff and I breaking up and me moving back to Idaho is the fact that I didn't like myself. And, and it only took such a really short amount of time. And when we left Oklahoma, I didn't have I didn't have a job. I didn't have any money. I had spent all my money not working for the last year, you know. We're, we're living in a 13, oh, well, maybe it was a 1,400-square-foot house, rented house in Meridian, Idaho, scraping by. I'm doing, you know, trying to figure out what the heck I'm going to do for a living. I go work for a carpet store, and I'm making $3,000 a month on draw. You know, I have to pay back as I make sales. You know, you just just a kick in the balls, man. And, and yet I still had this passion that I freaking loved filming my hunts and I loved producing and I wanted to do that. So I bought that computer. I invested my time when my wife was working, I would take my son with me and we'd drive up and I got permission on a farm just to film deer. A year later I got permission to hunt deer on that, you know, in that area. Um, and my son was with me all this time because he's 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 a toddler. My wife was working to support us. I was a dirtbag. I had just lost everything that we had ever saved in our entire lives over one year period of time chasing a dream. I was a dirtbag, you know? And that's what it took for me to realize that I wasn't in this for popularity. I wasn't in this for an ego. I wasn't in this to become a professional hunter. I'm in this because... I need to figure out a way to pay, put food on the table and I'm good at it and I want to make it successful. And it didn't take very many years that I was able to do that. Um, producing a local show in the Boise area called behind the rack. Steve Alderman was a, was a a partner of mine on that. And we had a lot of other good contributors. Zach Bohe contributed to some footage to that. Um, Fred Waymeyer, there was a lot of great guys that contributed footage for that show to grow in the local Boise area. Was it making any money? No, but I was in the process. I consider that my education. That was my college. I spent those three years learning how to produce a TV show, learning how to deal with the networks, learning how to deal with sponsors and growing it to the point that when I was able to land another production contract for another company, another show out of Missouri and produce their show for the sportsman channel, which eventually turned into me being able to produce Solo Hunter for the Sportsman Channel. That was all my education. And that was that was the few short the short period of time where I learned that I'm nobody, you know? I'm just a freaking hard worker. I'm dedicated to the sport. I'm dedicated to building a business around it.
0: And that's who I'm gonna be. I'm never gonna be the most popular. How huh. did you get how did, how do you go from quote unquote, losing it all in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. moving back to Meridian, Idaho, you said that your personal life was somewhat in shambles. You and your wife weren't doing good. Is that, or you no, got, no, your no. marriage her, wasn't doing her good? Her parents told her
1: that, that if she wanted to leave me, they would support that. You know, it's at that point where this guy's selfish. He's out spending money that you don't have hunting. Because he's going to be a TV. So then, star. how
0: in the hell did you? So you're that good of a salesman that just a couple years later you persuaded to I'm going to go try it again and buy my own computer? Or were, no. were, were was your outlook so much brighter now? I'm I'm wondering wh- how you get the confidence to try it again because now you're you're betting on yourself again. You're risking it all on yourself again. But I'm working,
1: you know. And and the thing of it is, is um, yeah, there there was probably there was probably a lot of. L- a lot of hard conversations that we had had, you know, she was working, she didn't want to work. I was working a job that I didn't want to work. Um, but our needs were being met financially. And so what time I had to do my other stuff, that was my time, you know? So I didn't, at that point, I'm not taking away from the family to do that because I'm providing for the family and my wife is helping provide for the family at that point in time. So, So when I would go out on these hunts and film my own hunts, my solo hunts, I always knew at that point, you know, and that's 2005. That's when I was like,
0: I want to do a show that's strapped around a guy just filming his hunts. You know, this is where I want to get into because this is the cool part of your life. Because to me, um, to make that decision is, I I think it's not the word terrifying is not the right word, but the word, if you're getting, if you're getting ready to go into business for yourself again, There's got to be a huge, there's got to be high odds of failure in this style of filming. Like, you you can't have 13 episodes of Tim and Remy almost killing a deer or almost getting the shot on camera. And to me, that's the risk in what you do is that when I know that I have my decoys out there and I got, you know, my apparatuses and I got my calling going on and I got my hide. I got my camera guy one behind me one one besides me to get the personality and the conversation this guy's staying a little bit wider but can zoom in when he wants I got a photographer and a blind over here that's getting unbelievable high definition photography
1: you know you're making it
0: I'm I'm coming out of there going man we just laid down a good hunt now we got to go put the story together and all that right but you 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 don't have that comfort level knowing that you're trying to do it all on your own. So now I'm wondering, there's gotta be a fear factor, not to bring Joe Rogan into this, but there is a fear factor going into this style that I don't understand why you would ever take the chance to do it. And now you've been doing it 10 years. Well, so I don't think at that point, I was not looking at,
1: I've always felt that producers, there's, there's certain producers out there that are producing content for other producers. They're not, they're not, they're, they're producing, they're producing a show. I was always out there to just document my haunts. I wanted to document it and document what was taking place and whether there was a kill at the end of that or not, that was the, that was what I was documenting. Um, when I was able to pull it off solo, then it was like, Whoa, damn that worked. You know, what did I learn from that? How can I do it better next time? But I knew that. At that point in 2005 that I wanted to do a show, my show and everything wrapped around no cameraman, no production crew, one, one guy. That's when man versus, I mean, that's when Les Stroud is coming on the scene. That's when Bear Grylls is coming on the scene. There's these kind of solo aspects coming on the scene to society and to, to national television. And I was drawn to that, you know, and I thought, well, in the hunting space, that's, that's a, that's a win. So in conversations that I'd have with with potential sponsors or whatever, I was like, ah, you can't, nobody, you can't produce a show wrapped around no no you know no cameraman. You just can't do it." But that's what I wanted to do, and so th- that was how I was filming my hunts as I was doing it. I was never out there to produce a, a hunt or produce a, a TV show. I was always out there to document my hunts and then work my magic in the editing bay to put it into a time format that worked for a TV show, and that's what Solo Hunter was, and we struggled the first season when it came out i did five episodes and and so quick quick backstory because i know you're a lot of your listeners might not know the story as i was learning how to edit and posting my videos on youtube clear back in 2007 when youtube started or that's when i started my youtube channel um a group of guys out of missouri contacted me and said hey we like your videos do you produce tv shows i said yes i do you
0: know <laughs> of
1: course i'll figure it out you know i'm i'm a resourceful guy so we worked out some numbers and some prices I'm like, babe, I can make some money producing these guys TV show. You know, this is this is going to work. And so I think I charged them a thousand dollars an episode Damn, to do their first their first season of, of, of episodes. I might need you to do one or two. Oh, yeah. The price is up way higher than <laughs> the that price now. is going up now, boy. So, you know, I produced their show and I had contacts
0: with the sportsman channel Wait, before you go real quick. They're filming their own stuff and Correct. sending you the footage in it's, Idaho. It's enemy tapes. Yep. So that's got to be tapes. stressful getting that going. What is this? Right. Yeah. Like, Cause I'm sure you had a, well, a certain level of standards by that time.
1: So at the same time, I'm also editing behind the rack, which was, was airing in a, in the Fox network there in Boise, Idaho. So Steve Alderman and I were working together with footage. And like I mentioned, Zach and some of the other guys. So I was already taking footage that was filmed, not for the use of television and having to create a TV show out of it. So I was at this, this whole time perfecting my ability to take shit footage and turn it into a 20 minute episode and was finding some success at that. Like I could, I liked doing it I could figure it out. So when they would send me footage, I liked the fact of picking through all their footage and creating an episode. And I would edit together, and I would send them a draft. They would they would then do their own voiceover and everything. Send me the voiceover tapes, and then I would put that over the top and mix it together and send it to the networks. So it was it was working, and that's kind of what I was so doing.
0: So How many hours? How many hours would, oh, would average on an episode at that time? Hundreds uh, for I, a thousand bucks. I'm not kidding. For I, a
1: thousand bucks, I guarantee I had over a hundred hours per episode I
0: for guarantee. this guy for this 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 deal oh, out of yeah. Missouri. Oh yeah. So you're not. I mean, you're making. Ten bucks an hour, dude. yeah, but time
1: you're're you're, you're, you're educating time's there yourself. right you know i mean you're working your day job, so night time it's just twelve free hours that you got to put into it, so you're, you're making ten dollars or hundred dollars,
0: so you do this, you send it to closed captioning, you're responsible for getting it to the network, yes. so now you're honing your skills right now, right yeah, so and then also with that deal was because I had the the,
1: the connections with the network, I was carrying the contract, so I had the. contract with the sportsman channel, I was charging these guys 75, right? So I, so in a sense, I'm making 2000 an episode, but I was negotiating on it. Like I was, was handling that. I was doing some sponsor deals for them and different things. So it was a good deal. They were happy. I was happy. It was, it was working. Well, midway through their first season, they lost their backer and they came to me and they're like, ah, we're done. We can't pay for, you know, you produce 13 episodes. We, we, they paid me for the episodes. He said, "But we can't run on the network." I'm like, "It ah, ain't gonna work because we got a contract with the network." And they're like, "Well, we're done. We don't. We don't have any money." So I go to the network and say, hey, "I'm sorry, we're gonna have to pull out for the fourth quarter. We don't. My, my clients lost their funding." They're like, "That ain't gonna happen. You owe us thirty five thousand dollars. You know, we'll just run their stuff out. We'll put you on payments. You gotta work with." us. And I, said, I and thankfully they work with me. You know, we were able to whittle that number down a little bit. But here I'm on the hook for 30 grand and no show to run. And if I do run it, it's benefiting somebody that, you know, essentially gone. Is, is gone. Right. Yeah. So I said, no, if I'm going to pay for this fourth quarter, I'm going to run my stuff. Awesome. I said, I have this stuff from my show here in Boise. Um, but I want to run my solo stuff and I want to call the show solo Hunter. And they're like, send us an episode. So I sent them an episode. I quick cut it together. Um, because at that point I hadn't even edited Some of that stuff. So I cut them together an episode. It was a whitetail hunt that I did up in North Idaho. Sent it to them. I think they got it on Tuesday. It went to air on Thursday. And they're like, got another one? At the time, so at the time, I'm putting together the next one. Send them the next one. And so I ran five episodes that first season. Well, then at that point, I'm like, I got to have better cameras. I I need some help. So I called, oops, excuse me. So I called Campbell Cameras. I'm like, hey, I need some cameras. What do you got that a guy could do solo stuff and this and that? And they're like, solo stuff? What do you mean? Talking a little bit and and the guy's like, need any sponsors for your show? It's like, well, yeah, I kinda kinda could. And so I was talking to Jeremy Lew at the time, who was the general manager mm-hmm. of the marketing guy. Yeah. He's like, Yeah, we'd like to sponsor your show. So boom, they jumped on board. And then I started, and then I was like, okay, this is this is this is going to happen or I got to get, get together and scrape up some money. So I called um, Dan Evans with trophy taker. I called David block with Outdoor edge. I called all these brands that I had met through Jeff and through the earlier days when I was, was with buck ventures called them. So this is what happened. All I need to do is cover my costs. You know, if you guys can just come on for just a little bit, this would be great. And they said, well, let's check out the show. Every single one of them came on board, you know, and after that first season, like I, felt like, I felt like it was a huge success because then the outdoor channel's calling and they're saying, hey, we saw your show, Sports, or we saw your show, Solo Hunter. We would like to bring you onto the network as an original. You know, we want to do all these things. And sponsors, other sponsors were calling, Carbon Express, Gorilla, had some ad agencies calling. They're saying, we want to we be a part of your show. So all of a sudden the ball is starting to roll, but it's October, right? Well, hunting season was already past. I had no footage would no, I I didn't have any time to hunt that fall because I was cutting together these episodes. So I had no footage for a season two. And that's, that's when, you know, that's when had I had the ability to have footage for a season two and already had Remy on board or some other guys with some solo footage on board, I think we would have springboarded a lot faster, but that was a humbling time because I had no footage. I had to, you know, ask for some footage from different people. And season two, if you will look back, and that's part of the reason why it's not published on YouTube or on Amazon or anywhere else, is because season two wasn't solo.
0: So I was just going to ask. It couldn't have been no. if you're getting footage.
1: Because nobody else is doing this crazy shit. No. Well, Remy, Remy well, ends up. Which was, so what I did is in the last couple episodes of that show, I put out a call to action. Hey, if you're a solo hunter, I'm looking for some footage, blah, blah, blah. And that's how I met Remy. So he saw that. So you didn't know Remy when you lived in Reno? No. No clue. In fact, the first two years that I knew Remy, I thought he lived in Montana. Really? We, had, we had never met. So he sends in footage, some other guys sent in footage, and that's what season two and most of season three was, was a lot of fan-submitted footage. But at the, And at that same time, there was guys like Remy and then a, another guy named Fred Wehmeyer, who was great. Um, there was these guys that were doing solo hunts that were a part of it that were doing a good job. and And at the point... You know, in the first years, you can't, you know how it is. You can't pay anybody. You don't have any money. You're right. just trying to, to figure things out. Well, Remy was the one that stuck with me. And he never, Remy, even to this day, even though he does get paid at this point, he never once has asked to get paid. You know, Remy's one of those just golden people that saw an opportunity to be involved. He loved the way that it was because if, if you look at our backgrounds, they're very similar. And, and he and I got along really well. And it's just been a, an amazing amazing ride ever since so
0: so when you hear the word solo were you alone like going back into your because remy comes across as a guy that's he's fine by himself Mm -hmm. he loves being by himself he's a loner like he, he, he he's great to get along with he's a great dude just like you are but i feel like hunting is so much about the camaraderie in the camp and, and the memories and the high fives and the smiles and the stories and all that. Now that you have kids and, and I'm sure that you're going to spend a lot of time in the woods with them does it what you do take away from that or are you coming back to a camp full of people or are you out there by yourself from beginning to end or does that wear on you? Is that why you only do it is that why hunting why you only no. do it so many times a year? Cuz to me that's boring. I'm more of a loner than Remy is.
1: Like Remy has
0: more friends
1: in the, I mean, he's got a lot of friends. He's a very, uh, he's very personable, you know, I, in, in the Reno area, even now, I, I don't have hunting friends in the Reno area that that I go hunting with. I've been hunting with Remy once, even the friends that I have, they either don't hunt or I've never had, we've never had the opportunity to hunt together. Um, I had one guy that I hunted with when I killed my big deer And he senses got out of hunting, you know, he kind of, he kind of got me into the Nevada hunting, but, um, for the most part, especially in those early years, when I'm, when I'm by myself, I'm by myself. And then a lot of that's out of just sheer necessity that that's when, that's when the times that I had to be able to go on those hunts as, as time has progressed, I spent a lot more time hunting with other people, um, But if, if, if I'm with other people, I'm, I'm saying I'm with other people and there's, there's episodes even now, especially this season, there's a lot of episodes that are not solo hunts. And I think we've been able to evolve to where, you know, solo, solo hunting is kind of defined by the individual I used to say, where to some guys that are purists, solo is you know, I'll, I'll get people that are like, Oh, you're not alone or whatever else, but there's do it yourself hunts. There's unguided hunts. There's. You know, a lot of different things. And then there's the true,
0: pure solo where you're out there by yourself. Well, my ignorance had me and I wasn't talking shit about you or Remy for years, but I was yeah. I was discounting the fact of or I was questioning your honesty for a mm-hmm. while because I'm a fan of the show and I have been for a long time. And I'm just like you. Like when I found out Remy lived here, I'm like, No shit. Yeah. And then and then Bubba tells me, Tim lives in Reno and I'm like, No shit. Like <laughs> really? Yeah. Like we should be hanging out. But like I question your guys' honesty for a while because I'm like, even like when I watch Survivor, I'm like, they look like they're starving. But when they get the camera turned off, they're eating a buffet. And then I found out that's not the case. They're really starving out there. And you guys are, you guys are doing this on your own, which I questioned for many years. Like, I don't know if they're really doing this on their own because they're getting, they're laying down some badass things. And, you know, educating myself on it through the talks with Remy, it, it is very, you're, I think you're kind of, not you're not just putting it in a corner and saying ah, it's easier than it looks I, even though your message is kind of saying that to me it seems very difficult to do what you yeah. do and i'm not discounting what we do because to lay down a good duck hunt it takes you got to have a lot of no. things that fall into place I'd rather right?
1: do it my way than your way
0: really yes i would that, that yeah. just blows my mind i just don't i that i can't i can't like digest that in, in, or internalize that and believe you because <laughs> <laughs> okay okay let me just put this into perspective oh, you you see an elk and you see the you know that you're gonna shoot this elk right here. There's gotta be four or five takes because you only get one shot. You but you gotta crawl back, get the camera, and then move it here because now all of a sudden Tim's up here. Yeah. Remy was trying to explain this to me. There's oh, all the way he does it is, is so stupid. he's different. Yeah. Like he's, he's way crazy.
1: Yeah. And and it's only when the situation works for it, like he will. i I've I watched through the footage. I, I can attest to it. He will set up a camera. He'll, he'll stalk through it so that you can, you can see him hunting. He'll set down his bow. He'll sneak back, grab the camera, sneak right back up and do the exact, and he'll do that over and over. I'm like, you're frigging nuts, man. That's what I'm talking about. You don't do that? No, 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 no. So I have my camera on, but I just use the camera, you know, I'll use, use it on the stick or whatever and crawl or everything else. So you actually see the cameras with me as I'm moving. Remy doesn't like to move with the camera. He likes to, you know, move as the camera is watching. Him. And it makes for some cool TV. Like, I think it makes our, our, our episodes a lot different that's in cool. a lot of those
0: ways. So if you're moving with the camera, how do you, if the, do you have to make sure, if the shot presents itself and you can't get no. your camera set, you don't get a shot.
1: Right, right. You can't I, kill it,
0: right? I, no, I kill it. It depends. it depends. Sometimes I don't, sometimes I do. That, that's the thing
1: of it is, too, is like... I'm a hunter first, right? When when I get caught up into wanting to produce, and think about oh, I want to get these beautiful shots, these time lapses, and I want to, you know, I want this. Oh, that'd be amazing to see me walking through there. Like, but then I think, oh, there's elk. Over, you know, and those elk could see me if I skyline. I'm not going to film it. I'm like, I, the shot's not that important to me. I don't want to booger the elk. You
0: know, um, the, look at we're that. We're just look documenting what, the hunt. Look at what I wrote down right here. This is what I was getting into is thoughts on shows that do it different than you do it. Well, is it, is it, do you look at something like we would lay down to where fence posts, clouds moving, time-lapse? No, I sun. love that. You do. You, you like the artistic You, you guy. have the
1: ability, and I like to do that when I can. In some cases, when I'm hunting, you can't because you're going to blow something out or you're going to screw up your hunt. So I just don't do it. I'm like, ah, screw it. This is the way the hunt's going to be. So do you go back on another day and get all the filler no, footage? No. If I, if I can't get it in that time that I was up there not going to do it but like just like you said there's there's a lot of time during the middle of the day when nothing's happening well that's when i film 90 percent of my footage is when nothing is happening if i need to get to that part of the mountain i'm not going to do it first thing in the morning because i'm hunting this part of the, the lower part of the mountain first thing in the morning and then when i've eliminated that then i'm going to get to the top of the mountain well i'm just going to show the process you know that's where i get a lot of the filler footage is, is in transition to what, if the, what if the sky's
0: what if the sky is different if there's an awesome sky... No, I'm talking about, like, can a, can a viewer go, whoa, Tim's not filming that in the right same part of the day? That's a totally different part of the day. Well, the, we hunt,
1: the hunt transpires.
0: So I'm, you're... I'm never using... I,
1: I, I don't know why you would use footage from the afternoon in the morning You don't make have to make do your morning that. look better because you got a time lapse in the afternoon, but you didn't get it in the morning. I'm just going to use that time lapse for the afternoon. You the know? I I don't feel like a certain like there's scenes, you know, when you're producing scenes or segments or whatever there might be. Um, the segment is what it is. If, 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 if I'm taking my Kodiak trip and I'm crunching it into one episode or two episodes, I'm, I'm documenting the hunt as it goes. Then when I hit that seven minute mark commercial, and then the next segment I'm documenting it till here hits that five minute mark commercial then I'm condensing all that and trying to tell the best story that I can within that. But I'm not looking at the entire picture and saying, hmm, segment one didn't have a time lapse. I better pull one from over here and put it in here. It's just it's whatever happened, happened, you know.
0: If I don't get a single time lapse on that hunting trip, I'm not disappointed. What about kills? How many episodes have you aired? I don't aired care in, about kills. How many episodes have, in 10 seasons and I know that the first couple seasons were less epi- less episodes. Yeah. I, 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 let's just educate so the listeners a little bit. It's 13 originals is really what a, a season of It's what it should be. Should yeah. be, right? Yeah, and we're cutting we cut back last year to 9. Just because we didn't have the footage. Well, it's know, freaking so hard doing what you yeah, do. Yeah. So how many episodes in 10 years have ended without Tim or Remy killing an animal? I would say
1: maybe half. 50%? Maybe. Uh, and did you maybe. take, did you take but, shit for that? Or do people oh, you Oh, yeah. You, you know what? Yeah. Because the thing of it is, is like, you've got those guys that if there's not two or three kills in an episode, that, like that, you have a viewer that that's their, that's their thing. They want to see an arrow go through an animal. Then you have the viewer that they want to see where you're at. They want to see you in awesome locations. Then you have the viewer that only wants to watch elk. He's not interested in mule deer, whitetail. Then you have the whitetail guy. Like you have all this huge spectrum of viewers of what they, what they're into. You can't produce for anybody else. I produce for Tim Burnett. I produce what I like to see and how I like to do it. And fortunately there's a, enough of population out there that likes to see it that way too. Do I always hit the mark? No, hell no. I, I feel like I fail on every episode. I don't hit my full potential on every episode, but that I think is what gives me the drive to be better and better each time. I, I think that the biggest issue that w- we as producers have today, and that is one of the biggest kick, kickbacks that I see when I, when I do my, a lot of my analytics and look at viewer response to other people's content, not just my own, I think the biggest thing is, is, is producers, are, who are we producing these shows for? We're pr- producing it to impress other producers. It's like, oh, look at that jib shot. Look at that time lapse. Look at that starscape. Look at this. You know, look, he's got a friggin' drone over the top of a Tommy gun, whatever, whatever this stuff is. I think the producers get so caught up into creating something that's so spectacular and so mainstream and not typical hunting industry They forget to just freaking hunt, you know, they forget to just document a hunt, just show the camaraderie, just show whatever, whatever that event is. Don't make it for what it's not. Don't throw in some dramatic music and talk in a monotone, somber voice because you want that to be dramatic. That should have been funny, you know, or that should have been entertaining to me. A lot of what I watch, I'm bored in the first 60 seconds, you know, because I'm not that personality type that gives a crap about cinematography. I'm the personality type that I want to get to know somebody on film. I want to see a cool adventure and so if I want to see some
0: animals. If I gave you a couple episodes and I know that you're, that you're not a bird guy, right. but I like hearing how critical you are, that you can get bored in five minutes. I would like to give you some of our episodes just for my own benefit. Mm-hmm. And I don't want you to be, I don't want you to sugarcoat shit, which I can tell in your personality, you're not going to. I want you to watch them because you mentioned some things just now, the, the cinematography, the music, I lo- I I feel that there's a soundtrack to the outdoors, and I want to capture yeah. the essence of the outdoors through music. I love music; music yeah. plays a big part in my life. I take a lot of pride in the music that we have publishing rights that we do use on our shows. With that being said, I agree a hundred percent that the dramatizing of hunting it wears me out because I love the fun, the camaraderie, the memories, the story. I love camp. I love to put. I like to put camp filler in to show people that. More of, the, of my story takes place around that campfire or that grill yeah. or whatever than it does pulling that trigger and killing a duck with the brain the size of an M&M. I don't get off on that. I love ducks. I respect ducks. I love shooting coyotes, but I have the utmost respect. When I hear somebody say, F a coyote, kill them all, it drives me freaking crazy. Yeah, Makes me want to fight. Yeah. So, but I, I would like to give you some episodes to get like a guy that's as critical as you are on certain types of TV because I always want to know where we're at. Because when I watch solo Hunter, I' go, man, I want to challenge myself to figure out a way to do things different and i don't I couldn't film a duck hunt and make it interesting with one camera. Yeah. I definitely couldn't do it with just a, one camera angle behind me without moving because I always have different personalities in the blind, and you don't want it just to be camera on Chad and then everybody else is back here whispering or whatever
1: i think I think what it'd take is it it's not a morning set you know it, for you for you to tell a, a you know, if, if I were to take take a, a bird hunting video, I don't think I could make a bird episode out of a morning hunt or even a day hunt or maybe even a two-day hunt, you know, unless you're just slamming the crap out of a lot of birds. But it Which takes that much time. I don't, I don't like time. to show that either. No, it takes that much time to, to tell a story, right? Yeah. Well, it, it's a story that happened in three hours. That's not a story. That's an event. So do you enjoy camp? Heck yeah! That's so I don't but, film camp, but a lot, being a loner is, though, but being
0: it. a loner, you still like having people around in your oh, hunting camps. Man, I love getting to camp. You just, just like, like being in the mountain by yourself. I more. like the one of
1: my favorite things to do is I get to my tent or whatever, I throw you know, set my bag aside, and I like to just lay down and just look up. You know, I just like to see. I like to watch the darkness come. I just like to listen. I love being alone. I mean, I have three kids at home and a and a wife. You know, like well, I live in the friggin' city. I want. I I relish the times when I can get out there and just absorb nothing. Are you spiritual? Yeah. Are you religious? Yeah, I'd say so I mean, what's religious? Like I believe in God. I go to church. Do I you pr- do live you, a good life. Do you I drink, pray. Do you, you know.
0: Do you drink cold beer? No. You don't yeah. drink any alcohol at all.
1: No. But that, does a person have to be religious to not drink alcohol?
0: No. I'm just yeah. trying to get a sense of like your personality at camp, of like what entails a camp of 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 what you would look at and go, yeah, I want to be in that camp because like in duck camp, it seems like it's a party because we're not worried about the way our clothes smell. We're not worried about covering our scent. We're not worried about being in bed at seven or Mm -hmm. any of that stuff. It's a different mentality. So as a solo hunter what is the environment like that draws you back is it that laying on your back and seeing the darkness and the stars is it becoming one with nature is it finding tim burnett yourself letting your ego go and finding out who you are as a person as you mature into this life daily i ask questions like do you drink a cold beer because socializing takes place in a duck camp around a fire with a cold beer I'm not saying that it's got to be a beer. Maybe a beer is the wrong thing, a cold cup. It doesn't matter what, what it is, is. Yeah. but there's talk going on all the time. There's always jabbering and, and joking and cornhole and whatever. It's fun. Right? It's fun. It's, yeah. it's, it's what I live for. Yeah. So when I hear you talk, I'm trying to picture myself. Could I, with my ADD and my my desire to be in the moment all the time, it's almost like meditation to you. It's almost like you look at hunting as meditation and therapy where I look at it as a social event more, even though right. I do find therapy in a duck blind and I've seen it b- b- be therapeutic to people like soldiers or pe- cancer patients or whatever it is. I know it's therapeutic, but I'm looking for, I'm looking for that, that, that camaraderie, that hug, seeing my boys and, and the, you're looking for You're, you're looking for the view of the sky on your back on those hunts. On but those but hunts. when I'm
1: hunting in Texas with Riley, you know or when i'm in mexico with remy and all and his brother and all the it's it's fun you know it's part like when those hunts take place when i'm with my brother or my uncle or whoever it might be cuz i hunt with other people a lot you know i just spent a week on kodiak with a, a new friend austin you know like that that type of stuff is fun you know when when i'm on a solo hunt you don't have that option so you do both oh heck yeah Heck yeah. guy be, if you if you only did solo hunts why? That's, that's why I asked if you were yourself? a loner. You'd that's why great. I asked,
0: that's why I asked if you were a loner, you know, um, because in a lot I, of things you I read about Tim closer Burnett, to a loner than not is a loner different than a soloist. I guess it is. You're a soloist because um, your life is, is around other people. I'm a hundred
1: percent independent. I like, I, I believe in a hundred percent independence and individuality and self-sufficiency. So yes, I think that's a soloist. I agree. But you also realize that there's a certain level of, of need to have people around you and people in your life. There's people that need to be influenced by you. There's people that you, you have to have people in order to live a full rich life. You've got to have, you've got to have quality people around you. I I fully believe that. That's why I'm a family man. That's why I have my children. I without, I mean, my children feed me a lot more than hunting feeds me. But when I'm hunting solo, That's a part of my life that I relish and I enjoy because I know that those times are limited, you know. I'm not going to be able to do that forever. Um, And those are are times that are really rare in our lives because 80% of my life I'm living in South Reno, you know, going to the grocery store, going to Little League Baseball, doing all these things where you've got all this commotion and, and clamor around you. Those times that I'm out there by myself, like, that's a rarity. It's pure. I mean, how rare is it to even be on a hunt, even if you are by yourself and there's nobody else around? You know, sometimes, there's, sometimes there's guys down in the parking lot, blaring the radio, doing their thing, and here I am, four miles up on the hill, listening to them, you know, from my tent, thinking those bastards just screwed up my week, you know? Right. So, you know, it's, there's, there's those times when you're truly and purely – solo and alone that are some of my favorite times. But there's also those times when I'm in camp with others, you know, sleeping in a soft, cozy bed in a lodge that are also some of my favorite hunts. It's just all part of, it's all part of the hunting and outdoor lifestyle, right? I don't think, I don't know why anybody would corner themselves and say, I'm only a turkey hunter or I'm only a whitetail hunter. Or, I'm only this. Try it all. I mean, do do everything. But don't be afraid either you know i mean that's that's a lot of the things that I get to is people aren't aren't you afraid to be out there alone and what is there to be afraid of? you know I mean whether i'm alone or if i'm with if I'm with six guys, the same critters are still out there, you know the same things could happen, or one of those six guys might shoot me in the ass. you know I mean what is there to be afraid of
0: i I can see I, I see where you're going with the question it's <laughs> what are you are you afraid to get into this deeper mentally in your psyche you do you yes or no do you have the entrep- do you have an entrepreneurial spirit you already oh, said yeah. Yeah. you already said you 're not a good yeah. an employee you 're not a good employee you don 't you don 't like to get take orders which i 'm the same way We know that at an early age, even though I was coachable and I was a disciplined athlete when I got into the real world of working and earning money i 've soon realized that. I was gonna be better suited to, to to have that entrepreneurial spirit which bit me early. Right. Are you scared at all? And I'm not assuming this through any of our conversations so far or anything that I've read on you. Are you afraid, are you scared with your current position in life, with your South, your South Reno home and your family? Where does the brand go from here? And does it scare you that it could dilute and be, and be saturated oh, yeah. here and be gone tomorrow are you being innovative to take it to the next level before you get told by a sponsor that their budget has been cut and the marketing manager calls you and says "Tim, I got bad news because that's a huge fear in this business. I don't care who you are, but where does it go from here? Because like you're, you're so, you're so comfortable with who you are and being, and I'm not saying you are in business. I'm not saying you are with the amount of money you make. I have no idea about any of that, sure. but as, as a, a business owner, as a guy in this field right now, yep. You're making a living producing and owning a TV show and a national brand that is, has antis, it has people that hate it. It's under, under, you know, political onslaught all the time. What, what are your fears next? Can Solo Hunter be gone tomorrow? And how do, we, how do you go to the next level with Solo Hunter to take the brand to where you want it? Is it de- are you in developmental stages of another TV show? That's what I'm always thinking yeah, about. It's yeah. like, where does Tim go from here? Yeah. How many more hunts can we watch on TV of Tim crawling through Rimrock chasing a chucker? You know, that's, yeah. that's what I'm looking at. How, how, do, how many more people can watch another mallard duck get killed in Arkansas on The Foul Life? And I'm like, man, I wonder if I need to change. And then I look at the numbers and I'm like, man, they're, they're not bad. No. They're not bad. I mean, how do we know? Like, how do you know? And where, are you scared to take this to the next level? Because you know, it's going to take another sacrifice away from your being away from your family. Or is, is there any what, fear in business at all? What, what's your definition of the next level? I think that the I th- uh, maybe it's not more no, money. I, I like where you're going. I, I'm right. saying like, are, are there is is there a is there a uh, another apex predator with Remy Warren produced by Tim Burnett and Solo Hunter Productions that we can look forward to? Is there a two-hour documentary that you're going to go to the the uh, the big the big movie festival and, and and put out there on on wild horses in the in the in the Sierra Mountains? Right. I, I, right there your mind is creative and i don't know if you've really at 43 years old i that what sitting here listening to you talk i can't tell if you're comfortable and you're done or you're just or you're or you're like you're just going to film solo hunter for five more years and 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 go away in the hunting industry and i'm i'm looking at myself the same way like where do i go from here like i it's it's all how do you innovate off of what you did and are you scared to keep going
1: um there's a lot there to absorb
0: I know, and I I, I rambled so, on because um, you. Um, I, I, hopefully, you don't have a time
1: limit on how no, long you want to i this. I'm I'm good for how however no, I'm, long you I'm, want to go because even if you cut it into whatever. No, I'm fine. No, I don't I cut love, anything. I love this kind of conversation. Um, there's there's two things really uh, that I look at um, from the production standpoint and Solo Hunter the TV show and the video brand that's that's separate to. My product brand, like with my rifle covers, my vinyl systems, the products that I license, my apparel and all that kind of thing. Like I feel like the, that is a, is a separate part of – that's what I consider the brand. The TV show to me is the marketing machine behind the brand, and it's 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 another revenue source. So when I, when I look at everything that I do, I have revenue from sponsors, I have revenue from product and brand, and then I have revenue from – um a result of that content that I, that I create that is on platforms that monetize themselves. So it's not not income that's coming from sponsors. When 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 I look at where I'm at with what I'm doing, I don't feel like I've even remotely scratched the surface of what Solo Hunter is capable of. With that being said, if Solo Hunter were to be gone tomorrow, it's my fault. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's from the fact that there's not an appetite for that type of content out there or a customer base for the products to be sold. I, I feel like it would be based on my limitations alone. Some of those limitations are personal. Some of those limitations might be uh, lack of know-how and some of those limitations might be my balls aren't big enough. You know, I'm just not aggressive enough. And a lot of those limitations are financial where in order to take it when you say the next level, like I feel like there's a huge opportunity to take it to to multiple levels, you know, both from a brand side and from a productions uh, content uh, side. Um, I've always felt like. I've underperformed with solo hunter content in the fact that if I was able to do all of the content solo with myself and Remy and maybe even a couple of other, other people involved that I feel like the show could have been more successful. It would have been more direct, less calls out. Oh, you're not by yourself. You know, you're, this isn't a show solo. I mean, there's some reviews on Amazon. I tuned in to watch something solo and you're with five other guys. Well, maybe, uh, I mean, but you have to realize that that person hasn't been there from the beginning they haven't seen the backstory. They haven't seen the progression. They haven't seen those dozens and dozens of hunts of us alone. They just happen to catch that one where we're, where it's a group hunt, you know, that to me, from a producer's standpoint, that's where, um, there's been a little bit of a, not a failure, but a lack of brand clarification, mainly because that's my personality. I'm ai am ai don't give a crap kind of guy. You know, I'm a, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, whether anybody likes it or not. So from that standpoint, yeah, I feel like there there could have been a lot more done with it. Um, I think what you're going to see with the way that I'm releasing content in the not too soon, like in the very, it would have been released already a lot of it, but we're just waiting for some of the partners that we partnered with on it to get behind some of the promotion of it. But I'm releasing a lot of my personal content in longer form, you know, fuller format. But it's not like, it's not a film, but it's not an episode. It's just more of what I have. And the majority of it's not solo, you know, the majority of it's hunts that I've done with other people, because to me, it's hard to make a 22 minute TV episode interesting, with just one guy, because I'm pretty dry as it is. Every once in a while, I'll come up with a lucky one liner, but it's hard to make that that interesting for a long amount of time. That's why if you looked at like any other show that's wrapped around solo or, or one person. Obviously they have a cameraman there, but they're throwing in so much content and it's so fast and so rapid and so, so many just extreme situations that it helps keep you, keep the viewer drawn to it. Well, the hunt doesn't always have that. A lot, of, I mean, 90% of the hunt is boring as hell. So to consistently produce 20 minute episodes, solo hunting episodes is pretty hard to do. That's why I feel like there's a big need to produce a lot of other stuff in addition to it, to help, to help keep. Keep myself out there. Um, I don't know where the future of "quote unquote" solo hunter television is, as far as a series. Who knows? I mean, only only the networks can, can dictate that, and only the
0: the viewer demands can dictate. You've that. already gone longer than ninety percent of outdoor <laughs> television shows go. Yeah, ten years. <laughs> 10 that's years pretty, a long pretty damn good run. I think they say two years is average. Yeah,
1: and I've been and I've been profitable since day one. You know, and I make a fat living now, uh, but it's not all based on just the content that I produce. It's not all sponsor revenue or whatever else it is. If you took away all my sponsors, I'd still make a good living. Um, If you took away all my brand stuff, I'd still make a good living. Um, But it's because of the business that I've built around it. And and I've I've done that more so than just just the TV show and the content. You didn't say
0: if you took away your digital platforms, you'd make a good living. So is that the bread and butter?
1: No, no. I still make more on the sponsors and the brand than I than I do on the digital platforms.
0: So, are you are you into other avenues in life that you have incomes coming in? So, no, you know, no, no. Subsidiary income. Solo
1: hunters. It Soul hunters. It for me.
0: But I what I what my fear is
1: is multiple of my brands coming to me and saying we're done. You know, and I've had that happen. I've had an ad agency that I work with pull and and you know I've lost I, I you know. you you lose sponsors or or relationships change. Like you have an income change on the sponsor side of things. That just means I got to work harder on the brand side. You know, I've been able to, in the last two years, interject a pretty steady income from the digital side of things. That's helped to supplement any losses that I might experience on any of the sides. But fortunately for me, every category that I've got has been growing year over year. Um, on the net profit side of things. So, from a business standpoint, it's great. Life is good, but I want to produ- do more from a production standpoint and from a product standpoint and a brand standpoint because I feel like the product line could be a multi-million dollar Sound, brand.
0: Sounds to me like you need an investor.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, but here I get it. I get offers for investors all the time. So, are you afraid of them or are they just you I don't want to play with somebody else's money. I'm a, I've been 100% self-funded from day one.
0: And that's just, Dude, that's you're just only one. you're only one, no per- mo- you're only one person though.
1: Yeah, You can't well, design right. the
0: product. You can't go visit the manufacturers. That's right. You can't do it on your own. That's why
1: I say I'm, that's why I say if, if Solo Hunter were to fail tomorrow, it's my own fault, you know, but if someone were to invest a couple million are
0: bucks, you afraid of losing your brand? What do you mean losing? Well, if you, you, I, I, I've faced this in my professional career of giving up too much or, or, you know, having something that you're so closely tied to that your baby, yeah. it's like a kid to you. Solo Hunter is your family. Yeah, that's yeah. what, that's what got you to where you're at.
1: Right. And you, I own hundred
0: percent of it. So you know? don't want to give up, you don't want to dilute that it, at all. I don't think it's that it's that if, if the right
1: partner came along, you know, and, and I've, I've offered partnership to a, a lot of people Remy. that I felt like could have brought value. Who Remy. Oh, Remy. Yeah, for sure. I'd partner with Remy in a heartbeat He's if, awesome. if it made sense. You know, um, he brings a lot of value in a lot of different ways, but does he have time to do the business side of things too? No, he's he's an entertainer. Remy is an asset. Remy's a value to a lot of different companies and a lot of different brands. And he's also a business minded person. He's not gonna go to work for somebody else. He's had off he, he's had offers, numerous offers from a lot of different places, you know. Um that's just not his thing. He's he's a lot like me in that regard. Um We never partnered from the get-go because we didn't want to have set limitations on either one of us, you know. There was no reason to limit his potential and and income just because he's now, quote-unquote, solo hunter only, you know, because he's got invested interest in it. It made a lot of sense to keep those opportunities and options open for both of us so that when Meteor comes along or somebody else comes along, there's no limitations to the levels that he can go. And you've seen what he's done with it. I mean, the dude's exploded. He's, he's one of the most popular, you know, in-demand, quote-unquote, assets and personalities in the industry right now, in my opinion. Who? Remy is. Because he's, he's just that good. You know, he's a good person. So it just, that didn't make sense. But for me, it's like, I don't think that I have any fears. I just don't feel like the right opportunities have come along. But
0: I'm also limited to a one-man show. But here's, that's what I don't get. That's if, where I'm going with all my questioning is why? Because the logo's badass. The, the, which one? That one that's on your hat.
1: Okay.
0: The ideology behind it's badass. If you yeah. really look at the significance of the word, it can parlay, and it doesn't mean that you have to be on an elk hunt by yourself filming yourself. Right. It's what the hunt means to you. That's what I get out of what the, the looking across the table at you, I'm like, dude, that brand is badass. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, you keep saying if it goes away tomorrow, it's my fault. I I I know that it's a multi million dollar brand, but still, oh, yeah. But still, you sit here and go, well, I'm not going to go talk to an investor. I want to. I, I, I'm trying to figure out like your business mind of like well, maybe a- this is maybe I should be more like that. Maybe close you know close the door on any opportunity or potential of somebody coming in and being a partner. And you keep saying, well, if the right one came, well, can it, is there a right one? I mean, yeah,
1: I, I think I think there is. I think in a I've I've dabbled with saying, you know, in a, in a couple of years where it was like I'm not, I'm going to focus less on the and you'll you'll see it. if you watch through the TV up you can see when the TV show suffered because I was focusing on building a brand building a product line licensing some products you know that's where my vinyl harness came along and different things like I was focusing on building a multi million dollar product brand the production side of it failed and the product side of it I wasn't that good at it. You know, I got lucky with the rifle cover. Like that was a home run from the very get go. And I made a lot of, uh, you know, sold a lot of rifle covers from that time, but that, that I, I did okay with it, but what it, I wasn't happy, like that's not my passion. If If I had a partner that came on, that was the brand guy, that was the product manufacturer distribution, you know, selling retail and I could be the creative and the marketing machine behind that freaking home run dude take that I mean you could take this you could you could turn it into a 10 million dollar business in 2 years I I 100% believe that because you would have somebody that knows what they're doing that has a passion about the product and the brand side of things understands retail placement versus wholesale understands the Amazon game that what is it right now 40% of the the of Outdoor goods and hunting goods are sold through Amazon. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a huge number. I don't understand that world. I don't want to screw with it because I like making. I not, like making videos, man. That's not your job, though. My job should be making shitty home videos that people like to watch. I and, don't think it's shitty doing, home video. I, I don't either, but I like to. I like to keep myself humble and everything. Like like that is where my passion lies. I mean, in the last several. It's, it's only been in the last six months that I've said, screw the product, screw the brand. I'm focusing on kick-ass content. Do you content. see the
0: underlying theme that I've just went through in the last two hours? I need a guy. No, <laughs> but you've, you've literally just built a career on being a loner and a soloist. Yeah, yeah. And you continue in your business efforts to expand a business with the potential that it freaking has. I, y- you're still staying solo because that's who you are. Like well, I'm getting out of it that yeah. y- like you wake up in the morning and I know you're family oriented. I can tell you're a great dad and a great husband. But business wise, you're sitting here in one verse, one sentence, saying, "Dude, ten million dollars, two years, guaranteed." And then you're going to sit here and if say, "If somebody but I knew rather- what they were doing." Well, no, there's I don't, know of, what, I don't know what I'm doing. There's plenty of people out there that know what they're doing. You've already done all the hard work. Oh, yeah. You've yeah. built a national brand that has a national built in audience and not just an audience, a freaking in consumer yeah. that spends money on the brand. You go out there and you say, All right, here's my portfolio. I'm wondering, are you scared to do that? Because you think that somebody's gonna take advantage of you? No. Or I, am I asking that question you know, because it happened to me? I, I, I'm, well, I don't know. Has it? I, oh, I don't, plenty of times, here's, but here's, I don't regret any of
1: the, it. The thing of it is, is, um, you know, I, I've had, like I said, I've had several people offer, say, look, whatever you need, whatever it is, million bucks, two million bucks, here it is. I could take their money and I could do the same thing that I'm doing, but I'm not doing it right. What I need would, or I say need, what would be the ideal situation would be someone to come in and say, here's what we have you know from a manufacturing distribution product vision team let's invest into solo hunter but we'll we'll handle all of this brand thing we'll handle the product growth thing we'll create that you freaking do what you're good at and create content and utilize the millions of you know I guess say millions but the hundreds of thousands of Followers and, and customer base that you've already built, your news, you know, the the email list that you've got, the social media following, the TV following, the worldwide following. I, I made a list yesterday because it's spring break. So my shipping team's obviously on ship spring break. So me and Hudson are packing boxes yesterday. Well, I made a list. There was I think seven different countries that we shipped to. And almost I mean, almost every state in the country, like we we shipped 60 packages yesterday. And I was like, it's off season. Nobody cares. Product. Hats.
0: hats, shirts, rifle covers, vinyl so, combos. So you're thinking that it's nowhere, it's nowhere near hunting season. It's, it's nowhere a, near it's hunting a, season. It's almost Easter and you're having that kind of success. 60 orders in a day is badass. Well, here, but, but here I'm sitting here going. And now here's the, the founder. Here's huge. the founder of a company, 10 years old. Stuff boxes. All, it's awesome that you are. Yeah. That's badass. You love those kind of success stories in America. Yeah. But... It's almost like you're filming a hunting version of undercover boss. Like you're right, in there doing, right. but think about like, I, I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you that your whole deal in life continues to go down this road of being this solo guy I, that, it, that you're going to be fine. And I, 10 more years is going to go by. You're going to be 53. And you're going to be like, so I worry about that. My, I know, knew there was fear in this. I worry. This what well, I was so
1: my wife and I have been having this conversation a lot because can I, can I physically sustain what I'm doing for as aggressively for that long? Hope so, you know, but you're only, I mean, as, as an, as an individual, you're only as powerful as you are You're the weak link and the strong link. There's no, there's nobody else to rely on. There's no right. anything else. So if I go down, you know, if I get, hit t-boned on my way home from this podcast today because the traffic in Spanish spring sucks, <laughs> then, then where am I at? You know, there's, so there's always those fears. There's also the fears of the future, you know, um, do I want to spend as much time away from home as I do now? Um, life, life changes. So that's always been kind of, the idea was build the brand to the point where you can either sell it or it, revolves on its own, you know, and I've already been able to scale back a lot on the content side of things and the the company still continues to grow by 10, 20% every year and sometimes more, you know? Um, but again, it's limited to my knowledge and my ability and what I know. My wife even, she's like, I don't even know the back end of your website. If you were to, if you were to get sick or whatever, she's like, I don't know how to do anything. You know, I don't know who you have to do what. So from my business standpoint, it's a jackass way to to structure a company. It's it's stupid, but it's very sustainable. There's no overhead. Every dime that's made goes into my account. You know, uh, every decision that's made goes through my head. Every everything that's done right is because of me. Everything that's done wrong is because of me. Like, so you don't hear a success story like Yeti. I don't see it successful. I mean,
0: but hey, we're we're standing on a cooler fishing. Yeah. along the coast of texas and we we need a stronger cooler and then yeah. the eddy blows up into what it did you don't ever like sit in bed going gosh I, yeah no oh, one yeah. can get
1: every that. day i visualize that i know that i could get that i've had conversations weekly with with different people you know the the, the, comp, the company that that uh, manufactures my rifle covers and, and other different things he's like do you understand the potential that you've built here I'm like yes sir i do You know, so he's acting. He's
0: acting as a consultant that comes into a company. and Says
1: he's one that's offer. He's like, let us take over your brand. Let us. Well, then set it up right with
0: your attorneys. But here's the
1: problem: he's not the guy.
0: But if he's not, then you there's got to be another. I know him, and I trust him, and I believe in him. So you're just going to sit around until you're 50 years old, waiting for the guy when you know that you've probably crossed paths with
1: ten of them. I could have. I could have. And, And maybe it's not that. You know, he's not the guy. Maybe he's not the guy today, or maybe 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 he's maybe he is the guy. Your I fear, just your it. I just so, found, so
0: maybe that is a fear. Your fear is this. In my opinion, if I was a couch doctor, which I'm
1: which you typically I, are, I'm
0: right? trying to be right now, um your fear is that when you are at retirement age of sixty-two years old, which we always heard that's when we get our AARP card, you're gonna sit back and go, I'm not gonna have shit. No, you're going to know that solo hunter never became what you knew it yeah. could become. And that's a fear to you. I look at you. Is look, that a fear to you? Oh yeah. Well, I don't know if it's
1: a fear or a disappointment, but I think the two were, the two go hand in hand. I think they're kind of two of the same thing. Um, cause I don't like to use the word fear cause I, j- I just don't like that word. I don't, I don't, Dude, I don't, I, have I like, don't fear anything, but I have a lot of disappointment. Um, you look at uh, things that are just jackass, like, Catching gears, you know, or whatever it is. All it takes is a real tree or somebody else, latch onto that, bam, multi-million dollar brand or whatever, whatever it might be. It, but it's but it, to me it's stupid, you know? With Solo Hunter, to some people it's stupid. It's whatever it is. But I feel like if the right if a company that knew what they were doing, or an individual that knew what he was doing from a brand in manufacturing and gr- and Taking and knowing how to scale a company, if they knew what they were doing, they could take Solo Hunter to to new heights. Oh yeah, I, I, mean, I am I, not I, that guy.
0: I don't know what I'm doing enough on that side of things. That's not I, the. That's I've not that's well not enough. A, that's not the problem, though. That's not the question. You've already self admitted that. Like you've yeah. already you've already taken yourself out of it and said I'm not that guy. That's the first step. Because the ignorance lies and the entrepreneurial spirit is saying. I am that guy, and I'm going to run this company until it's gone. Or, I but I know what I'm good at. I'm good uh, yeah. at. I'm so good at making and you've people already, feel. You've already built video. it into a brand. Yeah. I don't understand. I don't understand how it can't go. We're, you're not going to catch all the population ever. Catching no, no, deers no, isn't. No. Catching no. deers isn't. The guy caught something that people like. Well, it's kind of clever. Then what about. I mean, freaking Waddell kills turkeys in a Waffle House hat, and they sell them like crazy. Sponsored by Waffle did House. Did you? Did you guys? Did you start branded? Banded, I banded did. yeah i'm the founder of banded yeah isn't that
1: doesn't real tree part i mean isn't that we license
0: you know, real tree on a lot of our patterns yeah.
1: isn't that brand exploded
0: and huge and huge. i mean i see it everywhere it's, it's freaking huge. awesome yeah it's humbling and you guys started, started that i started in that girl that shop right there in 2008 yeah so you know what you're doing i don't know what i think that's the thing is i or either that or you caught the right person, no, the right team. I, I'm yeah. always transparent when I talk about banded. I've, I've made mistakes in the, in the, in the capitalization of the company, the ownership, the, the, ba- the brand is doing very well. I'm still an owner of banded, but I'm not happy with exactly where the company is. Gotcha. I think that the, I think that the brand has a ton more potential, yeah. but as I sit here and uh, the, the banded story, I love to tell, I love telling the band story of how it came about, how, when I looked, I had a duck mount in my office. i I looked at it and it was called strike up the band. I had nine banded greenheads coming through flooded timber on a pedestal mount. And I called my intellectual property attorney. I said, Hey, I want to name a company banded. Do you think we can get it? Went through with the USPTO, USTP and boom, got it trademarked, got it, Pat, got it, not patented, but registered. Mm-hmm. And it was significant with waterfowl hunters. And then I started building this image of band of brothers. Like we're banded. We're one we're hunters. We have a voice. We did that and and that's what i've always taken pride in is being able to develop all those touch points of taking those brands and being able to get them to a point that's not just in a gar- in a garage in spanish springs nevada that right. you go into any sporting goods store in the country now you see banded product in right. one realm or the other and that's humbling to know that and that's why i'm wondering like not everything's done the right way i could t- I know i know intricate stories about yeti that are uh, maybe not intricate is the right word but they're not 100% perfect. They've made tons of mistakes and they know that there's been a lot of things in business that's learning curves. And at 44 years old, I'm you're 43. I'm 44. I look at it like, should I be further along in life? Because these dudes developed this Yeti company. I don't know their backstory or how financially they got the investment to go where they did. I feel good where I'm at, what I've done, what we've done, this team, these touch points, my network, everything that we've built to it's, it's unreal life. You would look at my life and people be like, Dude, you you must be freaking just worth millions. You travel the world. Like, Aren't no, you? No. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that maybe I am. But I'm saying that I'm saying that this life is so special, and the, the branding part of it is so special to me that I look at your brand and I'm just like, you're scared to frick, to to bring on to, to bring on people, and it might maybe scared isn't the right word, but I don't know if awkward's the right word. I don't no, know if I hesitant's the I right don't word. Think, I mean. I could take that brand name right there and right now with the notes I have and what's in my mind right now, I could sit down with a business plan right now on that name and go, dude, you could do this, 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 and this just with what I have on my side, on my, uh, that is on this side of the table. Right. And I I look at it like, dude, that's, uh, it's just badass. And you have it trademarked, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, it's registered.
0: Registered. I have Uh, both the solo HNTR
1: and solo Hunter. And and
0: and the HNTR is a badass fit. I'm looking at it like, There's, there's gotta be something else that is like, that, that, that is preventing you from going to that next level because at 43, you're not 30, but at 30, you don't have the knowledge that you do at 43, but at 53, are Chad and Tim going to be sitting across this table going, man, I wish the foul life would have turned into something more. And I wish in solo hunter could have been so much bigger. You know, we got the memories of the hunts, we got the supply of good living for our family, but. I think you're scared to take the business and the brand to the next level. I see, and, and I don't,
1: I don't see it as fear. Again, I see it as lack of knowledge,
0: lack of knowledge. Okay. I'll, okay. That's fine. Um,
1: but you're smart enough to find the knowledge.
0: You're, you're, an intelligent human being to get
1: where you've gotten in life. Yeah. But as, as I, so I, that's another fault that I have is I can find the you know, I'm a, I can maybe not excuses, but whatever. So also running, being a one man show, like your time is finite, right? So finding time to to hit the deadlines on productions and different things and, and all of that to find time to acquire the knowledge or meet the people or do the certain things. I found that very difficult for me to learn about the branding side of things and about the licensing side of things. And it's, it's on nobody's shoulders, but my own, you know, it's because I haven't learned that. I feel like I would have to take away from my time producing and doing those other things to focus on that, which I tried for a while and I don't feel like I did a good job at it. So I've come to the realization now that in order for that to happen, I have to relinquish a major part of the control of that over to someone that knows what they're doing, that already has turnkey that, that I feel comfortable with that can responsibly take it to that point. And then I'm cool with that. I once see, I'm the type of guy that once I get, It's set and settled in my mind and a contract and the ink is dry pedal to the metal, man, balls to the walls. I'll focus on my thing. You focus on your thing. Let's do this and, and make it happen. Like I have no, no second thoughts because I put, I feel like I put that much thought and effort into the front end of it. That's, that's all it is for me is, is if the right partner came along or if I were able to solicit and find the right partner, then I feel like that would be a, good and proper way of, of expanding the company and the brand. I feel like even if I quit focusing on productions and editing and and the TV side and and the creative side of things and only focused on the brand side, I don't think I'd be successful. I I, I don't think I would be as successful. Cause I just don't know that I'm not as passionate. about
0: Yeah. It. yeah but you you have a mind that works on the creative side of thing, the artistic side. Yeah, of right? so and that goes, that goes back to being in that basement and seeing those VHS tapes. Yeah. And that's what got you into this. But I, I want that though. Like that's my, awesome. But I that want that.
1: So I want that partner or that, that person that knows what they're doing or that company, that brand. I mean, I have, there's people that I've talked to that I, I'm trying to make something happen. I want that to happen really bad. Because I see that there's so much potential and I've had that conversation with my friend Kendall at Crispy Boots and his partner, Mark, who are, they're, they're extremely successful in multiple businesses. And the conversation is, is I don't know what to do with solo hunter. It's got so much more potential. I need it to explode. I, you know, I wanted to do these things. I don't know how to do it. Well, they're busy too, you know? So it's not like they can, they have no vested interest in it. So like that's on my mind, really, really heavy. But I, t- I, but t- I, I haven't tail. been able to make that happen.
0: I can it's always on my and mind. I, and
1: I don't want to take a pay cut. You know, I've hired editors, I've hired producers in the past to take over all the productions. It's failed miserably. It's just cost me a shit ton of money, made
0: me your, miserable. Your stress you levels know, your stress levels high. You when have I, no hours in the day left. Yeah. When I
1: take take back over the productions like I have in the last six months and just focus solely on that, man, I'm a friggin' happy guy. Friggin' happy. Well, that's good. Guy. So but that's why br- I want somebody else to take take care of the brand side. I, I know people that, are, that would be good at it. It's not what I want. I want somebody that freaking hit a home run. I want somebody that, that is badass at it. And you don't think you've crossed paths with that individual yet? I may or may not have. I, 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 to this point, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I actually take that back. Yeah, I know, I know some individuals that wouldn't even have to invest money in it, just time and knowledge and experience into it, and they would blow it out of the park. But they don't have that time.
0: But you're scared to lose too much ownership. I don't care about the ownership. You don't? No. You could be a minority partner? Minority? <laughs> <laughs> so you do care about the ownership.
1: You, you know, um, I think it would have to be structured in such a way that, um, you know, that I could secure the endorsement deals and that I could secure the digital, you know, the, the content side of the thing to where the ownership in that stayed under my umbrella, but ownership in the brand. I'd, I'd be a minority partner,
0: potentially. Hmm. For the radio. I think we opened up some doors today with this little uh, yeah. how it went like this in and out, in and <laughs> out. And I'm 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 really interested in. That was a it, hell of a conversation, man. It went a lot of different directions. It's supposed to. Yeah, that's what's what,
1: awesome about podcasts. When you talk with somebody, and not every not every conversation you a person has is is that way where you can get that deep and learn and experience. You know cover that much information a lot of it's sometimes it's pretty hard to, to drag out conversations but it can be that's what's awesome about a podcast format is there's there's no other form of communication or platform or form of media out there that you can reach people at a personal level like you can with podcasts i agree
0: that's what's sweet that's why i gotta keep doing it i uh Myself and my uh, partner, my buddy Chris, launched a new brand in January called Jargon. It's game calls. And I learned the word jargon in 1994, five in college, playing college baseball, when one of my professors told me, y- you cocky-ass baseball players out mm-hmm. there talking your jargon and spitting your tobacco. And I'm like, jargon? And I started looking into the word, and to this day, I think it is such a badass word. So so I started looking, you know, like the specialized vocabulary amongst a group of people, and when our duck call and goose call company failed banded, you know we had the game calls at one point, but then we became more of a, right. an apparel and an accessory and, and a, a manufacturing company we weren 't a a custom duck call shop anymore because we didn 't have customer service we didn 't have good designs we didn 't have shit but yeah. in the last in the last little bit, I went to work on this and we launched it and what you 're saying about the podcast format is exactly. What I envision when I put the business plan together for jargon, which all of my business plans are the same thing. they're like one paragraph of what's getting ready to go down, And I wanted to, to develop not an urgency but a sense of urgency of, look, communication is so important in everything that we do. The jargon means on so many different levels, you and I talk as hunters, we can talk as friends, we can talk as business cohorts, we can talk as entrepreneurs. You talk to your wife in a different language than you talk to me, probably. She probably wouldn't understand some of the things that we talk about. Pilots speak their own language, baseball coaches, whatever. So I started breaking it down on this multi-level deal of branding of when I'm at camp, I speak to duck hunters in a way. When I'm in the field, I speak to duck hunters a different way. Hey, man, we're joking around. We're ribbing when we're in the field. Hey, shake the water. Pull the jerk string. Get down. Cover up. Turn the mojo on. Hit the call. Dude, here they come, guys. Get down. You know, get ready. Get ready. Guys, get ready. Take them. Take them. That's jargon. Right. That doesn't mean shit to a baseball team here and all that. Right. Then I'm talking to my dog. Hold, steady, watch, mark, whistle stops. Whole other jargon, right? Yeah. And then I'm talking to the wild animal which is a completely different level right. of jargon right. marr, 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 marr. or coyote calling or turkey calling or whitetail calling, or, or whatever you're calling goose or whatever. So now I'm trying to develop this brand and this branding of, Hey man, we we were put on this earth to do two things besides raise a family and be loving. We're supposed to work and communicate. And I think communication is so key because now I'm sitting here going, man, I don't even know Tim Burnett, I don't know you. I mean, we're right. we're, you gonna, and I, you we're and We might not have even met before this podcast. I, we like, may have one time, but I feel like we're going to be friends. And maybe you don't, but <laughs> um, you when you when you put everything up with communication and transparency, I think it's so key. And that's why I try to dig in. Of like, dude, you seem like you like you you really are a loner like you yeah. want to stay alone when this brand if i'm never once wanted to come across in the conversation of like solo hunter suffering and it's going away i'm saying that it's a freaking badass brand the name the logo everything and i'm i'm seeing all these visions and again anybody can have vision right. it's how you comp, you know c- capitalize on the vision and make it a, and make it a tr- uh, a reality but i i'm just looking at it like through the conversation we had through the transparency that you laid down and the questions or or the the transitions i was trying to make is like dude something's got to give because in 7 years from now let's say in your 50 year birthday that whatever that birthday's called 50s young in business i don't care what people say 50 in life 50 is so young I'm just wondering if you're going to be sitting here looking at me like, man, uh, you know, we, we, there was this one guy I met and he was, he just wasn't the guy, man. I just wasn't the guy. And I've had these conversations in my head so much. And I finally came to the realization of you have to get somebody else's opinion. You have to have somebody come in from the outside and look at the organization and look at the infrastructure and look at the business model and go, Tim, you are a clown for putting out 18 to 20 hours. And now you're going to come in here and have the audacity to stuff 60 boxes when you founded this company. I get the work ethic part of it, but that your time is not well spent stuffing boxes. Oh boxes. Yeah. Period. So I'm thinking that's what I came to the realization is like, dude, I have to have somebody else look at my brands. I have to, and I, and I've had some really good mentors that have come in and told me like, I know this guy, he came into my, inf- in my organization and he spent day after day and it's expensive. It's expensive to do it, and these guys come at you, and they're like, "You need to cut here. You need to add here. You're not going to do this ever again because your time's going to be." And you got to be like, "Man, I wasn't ready for all of that. I really didn't know that I had that many holes or that many chinks in my armor." And I'm not saying that you do. I'm oh, saying I do. I, I'm I talking personally. Chinks, yeah. I'm talking personally. Like I had to really like step back, and I'm still doing it to this day at 44 years old. Business wise, I'm still evaluating my businesses like I would evaluate a hunt. If this happens. This is going to happen. If I don't do this, this isn't going to happen. And and I really started to evaluate hunts more when I was trying to depict a story on TV. I wanted to show people that it's not just go out and hunt this private field in Montana for mallards off of the uh, off of the off of the Bozeman River and successful. That's not what it was about to me. I really wanted to lay down the path that it took to get to Bozeman. people don't understand that it takes a path to get there and that brand has a solid path and now you're freaking 43 years old stuffing boxes for 60 website orders and i know that you're going to do it because you're a worker but what in seven years are you still going to be stuffing your 120 boxes of the solo hunter hat when solo hunter needs to be on a freaking chevy
1: oh yeah i know i should have i should have never bought that Raptor. i should have been a sponsored truck I'm telling
0: you, I mean, <laughs> no, there's it, 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 it There's a lot of to, ways to look
1: at it. I know how to do what I do, um, you know, and, and I'm a better doer than I am a manager. And that, that's all it's come down to is just, is just a, uh, you know, a management standpoint of having somebody that knows what they're doing versus a creative, a creative is a shitty business owner. And that's what I have found is I can be very good at what I do on the creative side of things. I don't and think that's the message just, that okay. people need
0: to take away from this is that you're a shitty business owner. No, 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 because
1: I've am very, i been very successful okay, at Okay, then at you're not a level, shitty business right. owner. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't, yeah. There's
0: a lot of similarities in what I'm trying, where yeah. I'm going with it is that I'm looking at it like, man, this is opening my eyes that the, we- the, the
1: takeaway here is there's huge potential with Solo Hunter, so any big investors who <laughs> know what they're doing out there. <laughs> I,
0: I'm not saying that I'm you're going to get it. an investor out of this, but I guarantee you that 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 message needs to be heard, that that there is a, t- there is a something to be said about an entity yeah. that has been in the public eye for 10 years and has had the success that you had. Yeah. And, and you're sitting here telling me in so many words that, hey, I, I'm ready to go to the next level. This brand has so much potential, and I'm sitting here going, so does mine. So does mine, what do we do? So how do you do it? What do we yeah. do, where do we go, where do we do? I did it one time, I raised capital back, I raised capital here, I just launched another brand, and now I'm sitting here going, did I launch jargon at the right time? Did I have the right amount of capital behind it? Did I have, and I'm, you question yourself so much in the face cause we're too close to it. Yeah. That's why the people coming in go, dude, that name and those duck calls have so much potential, but we need to do this with it. And my first yeah. thing is like, whoa, I think we need to just keep it where it's at. But I'm telling you that other point of view is so oh, wow. important. Yeah, it's so it's important.
1: And, and I don't feel like, I don't feel like the money is the answer. You know, no, I, don't I think know. I think an investor to 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 give me money to grow, scale my business may be a bad investment in, without having an individual
0: in place in charge of that that division. Hundred percent that you need somebody that comes in with the yep. with with a set of skills, a skill yep. set to do that part of it, which is important because business. then I take the production side to to, to the up. next level, yep. and that's, that's what it that's and I'm that's. Where we're gonna end this? That's what Solo Hunter deserves. Right. It's already a freaking badass brand. It deserves to have all of your attention on what you love to do, right. which is that production side. Right. But there is potential over here in manufacturing, distribution, retail, sales, well, all of the things. I mean, I could your trade show booth would be. Uh, we'll talk off off. Yeah. We'll talk off microphone of this after one we, after we take a leak. Yeah, after we take a leak. But hey, guys, this episode of and girls i shouldn't always just say hey guys Thank i know that there's girls. You, by in, the way there's a lot of girls out here listening to this life ain't for everybody guys check out solo hunter what's the website tim
1: uh solohunter.com you can spell it out full solo hunter if you want or you can do the solo hntr i own them both solo, and on instagram solo. is both instagram is just is only the one solo H-N- hntr that's when i've been tagging today Yep, and then I have Solo Hunter Brand on there. And then some other, somebody else has got Solo Hunter or something. There's a lot of Solo Hunters on Instagram, but I'm the biggest one.
0: So. And do you air 52 weeks a year on Outdoor Channel? No,
1: only 26. Which, so we'll start up again third quarter, which is July, first week of July.
0: Through December, third yep. and fourth quarter. And right
1: now we have 12 new episodes slated. Depends on what Remy comes back from New Zealand with. So right now I think we have 11 or 12 slated mm-hmm. for this season. Some good stuff, a lot of Alaska stuff and some...
0: Is cool is things. Remy in New Zealand laying down some stuff right, right now? now? Yep, right now. He's a so, stud, isn't so he? So he's
1: doing, the, he does a lot of things for, you know, Under Armour, and he's got a new rifle sponsor, I think, that's that's putting him on some hunts, and he does some stuff for Meteor. Like, Remy's, Remy's balls out. He's he's one of the best in the industry. He's a real deal, and he's, ain't he? He is the friggin'
0: Cool guy, guy, too. Yep good friend cool guy i just got a spray and bedliner by his family the other day he did
1: oh his dad his
0: family's awesome his dan's mom. awesome
1: yeah jason was trying at the gym i do the class after jason he does the crossfit stuff and he's like oh you need to come work out with us with the real man and i'm like nah i'm too old for crossfit yeah. it hurt me sure, kills you what i do is pretty dang tough but.
0: let's go work out so i'm gonna do it i'm gonna try it yeah. i got but just always keep in mind that i'm a mild asthmatic you know this is high elevation breathing <laughs> <even> up here <laughs> oh,
1: wheezy yeah.
0: today's episode was brought to you by the north american whitetail championships brought to you by our good friends down in booger bottom georgia the bone collector crew michael waddell and his clan down there they're teamed up with wicked outfitters in kansas to bring you the north american whitetail championships 14 regions across north america and canada i guess that's pretty much the same same continent but the continental united states and canada there's 14 different regions 300 dollars to become entered in to qualify and have a chance at winning fifty thousand dollars and when you enter that three hundred dollars gets you a prize package that's already valued it over that with a tacticam, a gator coolers tumbler some broadheads accessories for your bow get involved guys enter the contest test your skills as a whitetail hunter stay safe stay ethical stay honest with it it's going to be a great thing for many years to come the 2019 North American Whitetail Championships. And today's episode was also brought to you, like I said before, by our friends at Matthew's Bows. In my opinion, the best in the business. I'm not a very qualified archer, but I hit my target every time. I just love the story of Matthew's. I love what they do. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast and all of our entities here. And today's episode was brought to you finally by Elkridge Knives. The stuff that they're introducing to market right now, I'm proud to use it in everything we do from butchering to processing to culinary in the kitchen putting that stuff putting that food on our Traegers that you see in everything that we do. We love to eat wild, cook wild. Guys, eat what you kill. Elkridge Blades, stay sharp. Um check them out at Elkridge.com, Elkridgeevolution.com. And you can find them on Instagram at elkridgeevolution. Evolution. Chad building for Tim Burnett and the Solo Hunter crew. This has been another episode of this life ain't for everybody Tom my badass producer will you please play that song by none other than Leith Lofton aka Haas what you gonna do when the money's all gone thank you all very much
1: Say life